All right, just a little bit now after 11 o'clock on Monday. It's June 1st, 2020. My name is Mike Hagan, <clears throat> and this is Radio Orbit. I'll be back with you all in just a few minutes.
right, there you go. Good evening, everybody. Good morning. Good day, whoever you are, wherever, whenever you might be listening. Welcome to the program. It is Radio Orbit. Still feeling great being back on the air. Last week was the first time in 10 weeks or so, and it still feels good. So yeah, live radio once again. Sure glad to be back in the studio and talking with y'all in real time. So yeah, Radio Orbit. Every Monday, we investigate the cutting edges in science, technology, nature, art, music, medicine, sometimes the strange and the unusual. Always interesting and usually pretty cool. You listen to it. It's Monday, the 1st of June, 2020. I hope you're all well out there and that the events and circumstances of the last few months and even the last few days haven't beaten you up too badly. These are strange days indeed, and I wish the best for everybody out there. I'm sure we'll talk about current events down the road tonight, but for now, welcome to the show. Hope things are good for you and you're enjoying the evening. It's a warm Monday night here in mid-Missouri, waxing gibbous moon. Right now, it'll be full in just a few days. Skies are pretty clear here after a nice weekend weather-wise, but a tumultuous weekend otherwise. Either way, take a look outside, out into the heavens, wherever you are. Maybe it'll provide some perspective. I like to do it whenever I can. All right, of course, it's once again a lovely night to curl up and listen into Radio Orbit. I mentioned last week a lot of people staying in as of late, and lots of people listen to the radio these days as well. I hope that's the case tonight. I'm glad you're all with me one way or the other. Let's take care of a few necessities, and then on to the show All right, yes, as always, a big thanks to the truly amazing KOPN staff and volunteer crew making great radio for nearly 48 years, 24-7, 365, just an awesome collection of people that make it happen up here at the Mighty Fine 89. On Mondays, Woody gets us moving with traditional classic country and Ameripolitan music, more country than ever. From 3 to 6 p.m. with the Real Deal Country Show. I love Woody's show and I listen every Monday because I uh, am a new found country radio fan. And by that I mean uh, I've only found it in the last uh, five to seven years. I grew up with a lot of country music, listening to stuff that my dad would play and stuff. But I never really got a good grip on it. And I used to make fun of it. And I always thought it was sort of stupid and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I just never had a lot of respect for country music. Well... Woody changed all that a few years back for me. I'm now a major fan of uh, primarily classic country, traditional country. I do like the new Ameripolitan scene, though. And uh, Woody does a great job of providing all that stuff for us every Monday from 3 to 6. Excellent music and great conversation. Woody's always doing cool interviews with some of the guys and girls that are making music in that in that scene these days. And just a wonderful way, uh, radio program. So anyway, Woody Adkins. Also, he was the uh, 2019 Ameripolitan Music DJ of the Year. Got to give Woody a shout out for that. Okay, that's 3 to 6 p.m. every Monday. At uh, 6 o'clock, the tech radio guys take over. We have a good crossover between uh, tech radio and this program. A lot of the stories that I'll do in the news uh, oftentimes might be something that would be covered on tech radio as well. But those guys doing a great job tonight. Tech radio, 6 o'clock until 7. Kelvin, inspired tonight. Got to tip the hat to Kelvin. Jazz plus blues equals humans and robots. And just concluding new wave radio theater. We heard Dick Gregory, just some wonderful insight and great comedy at the same time. Appreciate Kevin putting that together. Awesome stuff, good music, good news, good talk. 
89 and a half on the dial and streaming all around this nutty planet at www.kopn.org. It's your imagination station. It's KOPN Columbia. All right, big thanks to all of you for listening and participating in the program. I sure appreciate the feedback. You know how to do it. Email, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Hello to everybody out there. Cheers. Keep up the, uh, uh, the communication. It's, it's imperative these days. I love hearing from you, and it doesn't matter what you've got on your mind, okay? Always, free, uh, always feel free to message me, whether it's a potential guest or maybe a musical artist that you'd like to see featured, maybe a topic you'd like to hear covered, maybe you have some art, some poetry you'd like to share. All of the above, whatever, please feel free and uh, open to send any and all of that stuff to me, okay? All right, last week, it was just you and me getting reacquainted. It was the first time I was back on the air in quite some time. And it was great to be here, and we just kind of eased back into it. Talked a lot about coronavirus, COVID-19, and what it's been like living in the world since all of this strangeness began a few months ago. We did space weather for the first time in a while, and we had a very interesting uh, call from our friend Spencer out there in Kansas City. If you missed the show last week, or any of the older shows for that matter, they're all on the web and available in the archives at the website, it's uh, www.mikehagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N, mikehagan.com. Uh, the archives for the show, uh, music archives are there. Oh, yeah, yeah, we had, um, we had some interesting sort of synth-pop music last week from a band called Damaged Bug, and uh, you can find them on the, on the web in the music archives if you're looking for information about the band that was featured last week, okay? All that's available on the web. One last thing, you might consider checking out the Radio Orbit Forum. Uh, of course, you can get there right from the website as well. Just click on the little button that says Orbit Forum, and you can post questions or stories or comments, or there's a chat room there, and uh, you can send direct messages. We've got over 200 people participating now over there, so I sure appreciate the new members, and hello, and thanks for joining the gang. Okay, uh, tonight, a thought-provoking interview with Dr. Sven Nyholm, Dr. Nyholm is an assistant professor of philosophical ethics at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. He has a new book out that's called Humans and Robots. It's a good one, and you can learn more about it in a few minutes. I was introduced to Dr. Nyholm through Dr. David Gunkel, who I was so pleased to have on the show back in September of last year, and their work is certainly related. David has a book uh, that was released last year called Robot Rights, another fascinating read. And while I'm at it, I might as well say hi to John Danaher out there and Maria Accente and Mark Kirkelberg and Beth Singler and, uh, and Gregor Wolbring. Gregor Wolbring, Dr. Gregor Wolbring, at, uh, he's up in Ontario, uh, but he's a, a remarkable man who just wrote a new paper that I, that I linked up on, on Twitter. I need to put that up on the forum, uh, but it has to do with the relationship between COVID-19 and uh, the disabled. And he has pioneered a sort of new field of studies in science and philosophy and ethics that he calls ability studies. And it's fascinating. I, I, I had the uh, great pleasure and privilege to interview Dr. Wolbring a few months back, and I'd love to get him back on the air. Uh, but anyway, a wonderful paper uh, just released in the last maybe week or so by Dr. Gregor Wolbring. You might check that out on the Twitter feed or um, 
on uh, on the forum. I'll try to put that up in a little bit here, okay? Also, there's a uh, a woman who I was just uh, introduced to named Carissa Valise. Actually, uh, Dr. Nyholm introduced me to her work, and I'm hoping to get in touch with her and have her on the program here as well. So anyway, uh, if I'm missing anyone, uh, they're all doing interesting and important work, and I'm sure pleased to have had a chance to talk with some of them and maybe some of the other ones that I mentioned down the road here. So anyway, check out that new paper by Gregor Wolbring, and it's super interesting stuff from all of these folks. And we're going to get to it with Dr. Sven Nyholm in just a few minutes, okay? For the tunes tonight, we have music from the Netherlands as well. They're called Yin Yin, and they're cool. We started the show off with a tune called Disco Disco. I'm going to wet my whistle, and we're going to play another one from Yin Yin here. And then we'll come back with Dr. Sven Nyholm. All right, this is a song that is called One Inch Punch. You listen to it. It's Yin Yin. Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, back in just a few minutes.
water into a cup. It becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. It's true, you are listening to Radio Orbit, and my name is Mike Hagan. Dr. Sven Nyholm is an assistant professor of philosophy and ethics at Utrecht University, that's in the Netherlands. Dr. Nyholm's work focuses on the ethics of automated driving, human-robot collaboration, deep brain stimulation, and disability and the goods of life. He's especially interested in how robotization and other types of automation affect traditional human values, as well as in questions raised by new technological developments. He has a new book out entitled Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. It's a profound read, and we're going to learn more about it with Dr. Sven Nyholm right about now. Before we get going, I do just want to say thank you. I, I'm real thrilled to have the chance to talk to you. I think your work is real important and, and super interesting, and uh, I'm sure glad that uh, I have a chance to talk with you today, Doctor. Well, thank you. Very good. Let's start off with uh, a couple of questions about your background. First of all, where are you located? You're up in the, is it the Netherlands or somewhere in Scandinavia? Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's the Netherlands. I mean, that's not Scandinavia, but it's south of Scandinavia. Mm. And I uh, work at the university in Utrecht. And that's the University of Technology at Eindhoven. Is that correct? Uh, no. So I just, uh, I was working up. Uh, there for the last four years, but then uh, uh, November of last year, I transferred, uh, well, I guess 15 minutes north to Utrecht, uh, where I now work. I see. Okay. Uh, the Utrecht University. Could you tell us a little bit about the nature of your work at the university there? 
yeah, so it's uh, it's a bunch of different things, and so uh, everything from uh, my own research, uh, writing uh, academic articles, books, and uh, supervising master students, PhD students, teaching courses, and uh, you know being on various committees and things like that. Uh, so uh, juggling many different things at the same time, basically. All right. How about a little bit about about your background, so people kind of get a feel for how you came to get involved in ethics of technology and some of these other related fields. Sure. So, well, I um, I grew up in Sweden, and uh, uh, when I was in high school, it was possible to take a philosophy course, which <laughs> I did, and uh, I didn't really have a sense that I understood what it was all about. But I did get a good grade in that course. <laughs> and my teacher sort of encouraged me to study some more philosophy when I went to college, which I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there on, uh, I was uh, very pleased to be encouraged by my teachers who said, you know, you should study more philosophy and continue on with this, which I did. And I ended up doing a PhD. I actually started uh, in Sweden at uh, Gothenburg University, but then I transferred over to the University of Michigan. Mm. And I did a PhD there where I studied uh, primarily ethics, and I wrote a dissertation about Kantian ethics, and so the sort of the history of ethics and ethical theory. Hmm. Uh, but then uh, in my first job, which was, uh, I was over in Germany in uh, Cologne, I started uh, doing more research on sort of uh, applied ethics issues, and I've always had an interest in uh, how sort of scientific developments, technological developments, how they challenge uh, the traditional philosophical questions. So, you know, philosophers have always talked about things such as free will, uh, what is it to to be a human being, you know, are we Mm -hmm. essentially uh, mental, psychological beings, are we essentially animals, some kind of mix of the two, and uh, those kinds of questions, I feel like sort of every time period have their own scientific and technological developments, mm-hmm. where uh, we have to kind of reassess our previous views on these things. So in a, in a way, the same questions popping up about, you know, free will, moral responsibility, uh, you know, how should we treat each other, how, uh, what's a good life, what's a meaningful life. Mm. But, uh, I mean, today, for example, we have automation, we have robots, we have AI, uh, and that's, again, raising a lot of questions that, uh, you know, how should, maybe we should rethink what it is to live a meaningful life as a human being. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the history of ethics and then a little bit about the history of ethics in relation to technology. Sure. The history of ethics, I mean, in a way, yeah. uh, the way it begun uh, was uh, in, well, obviously in classical antiquity with the ancient Greek, uh, Greeks and Romans. And mm-hmm. for them, the basic question of ethics was uh, how to live a good life. And uh, so uh, there were different conceptions of happiness. I mean, you had Aristotle with the idea that happiness is to kind of full, uh, fully uh, live out uh, and uh, realize uh, human potential to develop various virtues and excellences. And then, of course, there were other schools, such as the Epicurean school, where happiness, uh, tranquility of mind was the main uh, ideal. And uh, that was really the kind of the main question back then, like what virtues do you need to live a good human life and how can you uh, achieve happiness? Uh, later on, uh, during the Enlightenment, uh, you had a kind of switch where ethics became much more inspired by sort of legal 
reasoning and legal thinking where, hmm. you know, what kind of responsibilities do you have? Uh, what kind of duties do you have and you be held accountable for? Uh, and so also, I mean, in the philosophy, for example, of Immanuel Kant, you have ideas such as, you know, you should follow a principle that you would be willing to lay down as a universal law. Again, you have this kind of legal metaphors. Uh, you have the idea of you know, human dignity. I mean, that was already part of ancient thinking, but really now putting that in terms not of what is it to kind of live a dignified, good life, but rather how can you treat other people so that you respect their dignity. And, uh, hmm, yeah. and it really it wasn't until the kind of enlightenment period in the history of ethics that people started saying, well, maybe we should treat everyone equally according to the same ethical standards. Uh, you also have, of course, uh, the utilitarian tradition uh, over in England, uh, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, hmm. uh, the idea that everyone should have a right to pursue happiness, and the ethical uh, basic principle should be that we should kind of try to promote everyone's happiness mm, yeah. to the greatest extent and uh, human suffering. And, uh, I mean, I guess that, that was during the time of the Industrial Revolution, or well, that came a little bit later, but technology, in a way, uh, started maybe coming into the discussion then, because, you know, already then you had a certain amount of automation, uh, people working in factories, uh, questions about what that did to, uh, you know, the, the the human worker. And, uh, of course, uh, Marx came in, coming up later, a little bit later, with the idea of alienation, etc. He was interested in the idea of machines. Uh, maybe humans become more like machines when they work in factories and putting things together, not really knowing, you know, that maybe they perform a very small task. They don't really know what the end result is going to be. They don't, uh, you know... They don't have any ownership, etc. That was, uh, according to Marx, a very alienating uh, process. When it comes to the kind of philosophy of technology that we see a lot of today, that's really very recent. I mean, so Heidegger, uh, hmm. or, well, basically 100 years ago now, he started thinking about technology and had what is sometimes called the instrumental theory of technology. Okay. So the idea that uh, well, all technologies are basically tools, they're instruments that we use for our human you know, goals and aims. And, of course, this is, this is the t- uh, theory that you would typically gravitate toward as the first task, so to speak, at how to think about technology. But uh, more recently, people have started to kind of question this idea. So uh, from two directions, I guess you could say. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, technology... It's not just a tool we use, it's also a uh, prism, if you will, through which you kind of experience reality. Mm. It mediates uh, our experience. And so, I mean, anything from, I mean, just wearing glasses and seeing better to, uh, you know, using social media to get information about the world or regular news sources. And that all affects what you know, what you don't know, how you think. Mm. Uh, And sometimes uh, sort of implicitly without your knowing it. Sometimes uh, you, you knowingly use certain technologies uh, to, to kind of being able to experience things uh, in a way that uh, you couldn't otherwise. I mean, again, things like glasses, a microscope, etc. Yeah. So technology also influences how we experience things and what we can do. Uh, so if you have uh, well, modern technology, you, can, you, know, you can travel to space, you can go to the moon, you can do all sorts of things that you couldn't without technology. Uh, you can communicate with people in uh, Missouri if you're in the Netherlands. 
uh, and so on. So, like, it also, we shouldn't only think about it as a tool, but you can also expand the horizon of things we can do uh, and how we experience the world. So that's kind of one development in thinking about technology, uh, not as a mere tool or instrument. But on the other hand, also people discussing ways in which people become attached to technologies. Uh, of course, I mean, there's the more trivial examples of people, like, say, like, and giving them names, etc. But uh, now that we have robots and AI that mm. seemingly have a, uh, well, they appear to people to have a kind of agency uh, in the sense that uh, we talk about self-driving cars, let's say, as making decisions. You know, it's facing a fork in the road, and so the car has to decide to go left or right. Right, right. Uh, even experts talk about this, they talk about self-driving cars in these ways, not just lay people. Uh, we have humanoid robots. I mean, there's the case that it's often discussed of Sophia, the mm. humanoid robot, yes. uh, created by uh, Hanson Robotics, the company. And in 2017, Saudi Arabia declared that they had made Sophia into an honorary citizen. Yes. And that's really going beyond uh, treating technology as a mere tool. Uh, it's now treated as a kind of a social uh, presence uh, that uh, perhaps we should treat with some degree of uh, possibly making to honorary citizens, etc. Mm. Well, you have a reasonably new book that's been released. It's called Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about the book and why you wrote it. Yeah, so that's Humans and Robots. I mean, I'm very interested in the way that human beings uh, react to or respond to uh, robots and technologies Again, I mean, the case with Sophia the robot is a good case in point. People, uh, I mean, in a way, they're, you know, they're either sort of on team Sophia, meaning that they approve of this idea of having a robot that looks like a human, talk shows, talking uh, in front of the UN, etc. Mm. And others who say, well, this whole idea of a talking robot, it's really a kind of scam. It's a puppet. Uh, and this is misleading people about how far along AI uh, has looked. Yes, And so it's a really kind of polarizing uh, idea, this idea of building robots that look and act like humans. Some people think it's a great idea. Uh, some people say, you know, we will understand human beings better if we are able to create robots that look a little bit and act a little bit like human beings. Say this is a kind of you know, road to uh, delusion because, you know, AI is nowhere far near as far along as this uh, sometimes suggests. Mm. So quite interesting how people react to robots of different kinds. Uh, again, I mentioned the example of the self-driving car. Uh, people are excited about this. And this could be, uh, well, some people are hoping that they can a car more environmentally friendly, convenient in all sorts of ways. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, people also worry, you know, when there are accidents. And, of course, uh, starting in 2016, people have been uh, killed in self-driving cars. Uh, in 2018, for the first time, happened that someone was hit by one, an experimental self-driving car in Arizona. And uh, then the question arises, like, okay, so who should be held responsible if there is such an uh, accident? Mm. Uh, the person in the car might say, you know, I wasn't driving. Yeah. The car was it, it's self-driving, so I shouldn't be held responsible. Uh, the uh, maker of the car might say, well, okay, so we made the car, but you bought it and you're using it, so you take responsibility. <laughs> right. Uh, so you get kind of a, in a, a situation where the responsibility is sort of passed around like a hot potato. <laughs> and uh, so we have these new kinds of problems that 
uh, we didn't seem to have before with things like responsibility, questions about how we should treat robots. And it's interesting how, I mean, these are all very human questions that are raised in the context of robots and robotics. And so that's what I wanted to kind of uh, discuss in this book. And I discuss, on the one hand, robots that, you know, like self-driving cars, I mean, it, they don't look like humans, they don't act like humans. Uh, and you have, uh, I mean, vacuum cleaning robots, lawnmower robots, military robots. They don't look like humans at all. But on the other hand, you do also have robots that, uh, well, I mean, Sophia was one example, but there are others too, that are both made to look like humans and that people respond to uh, to some extent, as if they are humans. Mm, yeah. And that's really fascinating. And that raises questions such as, uh, you know, will there ever be a time where we should treat these robots with some degree of moral consideration? Or is that always going to be uh, ruled out as a bad idea? Hmm. I had a conversation with a gentleman named, named uh, David Gunkel, who you may be familiar with. And yes, I, 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 I think that we're kind of in the same groups in on Twitter and I, I I like to follow all of you guys but uh, he's very interesting and he wrote a book called robot rights that sort of brings up some of these ideas is your book in any way related to uh, to some of the things that David speaks about oh absolutely so yeah so he's a friend of mine and a colleague and uh, I very much respect his work uh, I guess I would maybe disagree partly with it uh, although I do agree with him that we should take seriously uh, the issue of uh, you know when uh, and if and if so why robots should ever have rights. Mm. Uh, I guess some some of his work seems to treat this actual whether the robot it's itself or him or herself, however you want to put it, <laughs> uh, sort of uh, has a kind of moral status uh, and deserves to be treated with more consideration. At least the well the first three kind of parts of his book discusses that question. Mm-hmm. But I think. At this stage, it seems better to ask, could we ever do treat other human beings sort of wrongly by mistreating robots that maybe look like them? Uh, I mean, an example I, I often like to use when I talk about this is that suppose, you know, I make a robot that looks like you. Mm-hmm. But I'm treating that robot, kicking it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would seem that you would feel attacked. Uh, and so... Any robot that you make that sort of looks like a human being, you're going to be able to find people that kind of look a little bit like that that robot and that would possibly feel that they're being attacked mm. if we don't treat well. So that kind of reason, in order to respect other human beings, maybe we should treat robots that look like human beings, yeah. uh, you know, in a disrespectful sort of way. But uh, the idea that the robot itself would be uh, sort of disturbing of some sort of moral status and rights then we start moving much more into sort of science fiction. And, of course, in science fiction, we do take seriously this idea. I mean, let's say that the human characters in Star Wars would mistreat, let's say, you know, C-3PO or <laughs> R2-D2. Right. Uh, I think in the, in the context of the fiction, we probably would think that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's also, I think, because we attribute, I mean, personalities to those robots. We think that they can communicate with humans uh, in the uh, you know in the fiction in a in a human-like way, uh, but you know the ro- robots that we have in reality. Uh, I mean, okay, in a way we do attribute some kind of personality to them, uh, and uh, there are interesting cases. I mean, for example, some military robots that 
have been given military funerals when they have been destroyed because the soldiers have become so attached to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have uh, other soldiers wanting to give medals of honor to sort of mil- military robots and, and making claims such as, you know, this robot had a personality of his own. You know, are those the kinds of things that we would also accept upon reflection? Or uh, is it rather the case that we maybe are two minds about this? I mean, so our... Um, reflective mind our reason might tell us that well you know it's it's, it's just a machine it's not really something with a personality but then maybe we might be attached to the robot we might uh, respond to it as if it is a person of a sort so uh that well this happens again have a topic that i quite a bit of in my book this, this tendency that we have as human beings to want to read the minds of others and so if i'm talking with a human being i'm always kind of thinking that they must be thinking and feeling certain things, and I'm kind of predicting where the conversation is going to go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if they smile, I think they're happy. If they, <laughs> you know, frown, I think they're not, etc. And that's a kind of hardwired uh, impulse that we have to try to read the minds of others. So if you may put, like, a human face on it and you make the robot smile, instinctively you're going to think that the robot is happy. Uh, even if you, uh, the rational part of your mind tells you that, well, you know, just a robot that's hmm. designed right. to, to look like it's happy. And uh, I think this is another place where maybe David going to uh, have, uh, he also kind of homes in on that aspect of human-robot interaction. And I think he thinks, I mean, if we start treating robots as if they have a moral status and uh, they should have rights, then, well, maybe... You know, why don't we embrace it? Why not endorse it? Let's think that we maybe should take this idea seriously. And uh, where I am more interested in asking the question, well, you know, what does it do to our relation to other human beings? Mm. And uh, how we, uh, whether or not we're respecting them. That would be kind of a, a difference between the way we're approaching these things, although we're interested in exactly the same topics. Okay. What would you say about the relationship of Hollywood and the media portrayal of robotics and AI, for example. I I think you mentioned earlier that AI, and I would add robotics as well, are nowhere nearly as far along as many people might assume that they are because of the way that they're portrayed in the media and in film. If you actually go into the laboratory, oftentimes you'll laugh at how clumsy and silly the robots are and how how many mistakes uh, uh, the technology actually still has in it. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about media portrayal, and then the way people intuit things? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, in the me- in, uh, in Hollywood movies, you see robots that are able to uh, perform well across wide ranges of circumstances. So, like, you know, in one scene, maybe C-3PO is having a conversation, and the next, you know, he's, uh, well, I don't know if he's ever driving one of the spaceships, but, you know, can easily imagine that sort of thing. Sure. And the next, they're fighting a battle, but... Real-world robots tend to be really good at uh, specific tasks mm-hmm. in controlled environments and really bad at anything else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, so pe- a lot of people have seen these very impressive videos of robots doing backflips, uh, you know, running up the stairs, uh, walking in the, in the woods, etc. But uh, you can bet that most of those robots, uh, they, that's the only thing they can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have the backflipping robot and you ask it to do anything else, it's not going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I think, is maybe the 
biggest the difference between the robots that we see in films and in science fiction and, and real robots that, that, that I mean they sometimes outperform human beings at particular tasks, but uh, human beings so far and presumably for a long time are going to outperform the robots in terms of flexibility, uh, ability to do different things in different situations, to mm. improvise. Uh, so uh, even though like like the backflipping robot or the I mean, there's another video of a robot dog that can run on a treadmill, they can run up the stairs, and uh, actually some of the engineers are kicking the robot dog in the video, and it, it stabilizes itself. Uh, that looks very impressive. Uh, that's probably the only thing that that particular robot can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, I mean, this also means that if you want a robot to function well, let's say in a logistics warehouse or a, a self-driving car on the road, you have to redesign or design the environment so that it becomes robot-friendly. Uh, I mean, there was a recent uh, story in the news about some hackers showing that if you take a uh, road sign saying that the speed limit is 35, and then sort of of the three, uh, you kind of draw a, uh, a a line so that it looks like the 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 middle part of the three is like a little funny misshape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Humans would still see that as saying three at yeah, 35. Mm-hmm. But uh, a Tesla car that was sort of tested against this thought it was an eight all of a sudden. Oh. And so, uh, so the Tesla uh, Model S has the autopilot feature. And so they were able to make the Tesla accelerate up until 85 uh, uh, by just drawing that line that no human would think neat, but... Wow. Artificial intelligence in the car saw it. Mm. So uh, AI and robots, it can be really good and really smart at specific tasks, but really dumb and really incompetent. <laughs> uh, you know, one the situation a little bit. And this can also lead to situations where, you know, if you want a, a well-working, uh, let's again, go back to the case of the logistics uh, robots in warehouses, that can be also quite impressive. Then you have to design the uh, interior of that uh, warehouse so that it's robot friendly. But of course, that make, might not make it very nice for the humans who yeah. work there. Yeah. Uh, and so, I guess the more we put robots into different roles and different, uh, you know, performing different tasks in society, we do face this kind of. Uh, uh, well, if we want to make that work well, we're going to have to redesign the environment. Uh, so that it's robot friendly, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be human friendly and nice for us. So, uh, sometimes we're going to have this kind of trade off. So maybe the robots will provide some benefit, but then we have to uh, compromise and adjust ourselves to uh, the robots in order to get those. Mm. And so this is a sort of another a running theme in, in the book that I am uh, just publishing. Uh, we have this choice that for a lot of robots, if you want to get uh, anything out of them, then we might need to adjust ourselves to them. Uh, that is not always going to be something that's very attractive to us. Mm. Uh, again, I mean, uh, if you take uh, the traffic system that we have, uh, so a self-driving car could perform very well on the highway, uh, but, you know, if you, you go to the middle of Amsterdam, to, to take a Dutch example where I'm located in the Netherlands, you know, there's lots of bikes everywhere, uh, old, sort of, uh, old European types of uh, narrow streets, very difficult uh, to navigate for a self-driving car. So if you want self-driving cars in Amsterdam, you would have to kind of rebuild the city. Uh, but, of course, no humans would like that. So that's a bit of a, a trade-off situation that we're going to be facing more and more as we learn more robots and AI. 
All right, that's a good place for us to take a little break. My guest tonight, Dr. Sven Nyholm. He is a professor at uh, Utrecht University. That is in the Netherlands. And um, yeah, back with Dr. Nyholm in just a few minutes. Let's hear one from uh, our featured musicians of the evening. In the meantime, this is one from Yin Yin. I will mention uh, Dr. Nyholm, the best way to get in touch with him, or if you want to follow his work, you can do that on the web. Just go to Twitter. And he is at Sven, S-V-E-N-N-Y-H-O-L-M. That's Sven Nyholm, S-V-E-N-N-Y-H-O-L-M. Very easy to find on Twitter. That's the best way to uh, communicate with, uh, with a good doctor. All right, once again, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. One from Yin Yin. Then we'll get back to my conversation with Dr. Sven Nyholm. Thank you. 
right, there's another one from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Yin Yin. I like it. Good stuff from the Netherlands. We got more good stuff from the Netherlands with our guest this evening. His name is Dr. Sven Nyholm. You can find him on the web at Twitter at Sven Nyholm. And of course, you can connect with him through my website as well, right there on the front page. There's a big picture of his recently released book called Humans and Robots. And uh, you can also directly uh, connect up with his with his Twitter feed from there as well, okay? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guest is Dr. Sven Nyholm. We'll get back to my conversation with Dr. Nyholm right now. Yeah, I think, you know, up until very recently, as you mentioned, robots have primarily been relegated to controlled designed environments. And and now we're approaching a time where we have robots navigating freely in the world and interacting with humans and animals and, and things like that. This seems to me to be a, a, a sort of a, a line that's, that's being crossed there. Yeah. And, uh, most robots that are useful so far get do that. I mean, they're not out in the wild, so to speak, but, uh, the self-driving car, that's something that's being at least experimented with in traffic uh, out in the world, so to speak. And uh, you have, uh, I mean, there's some experimentation on, at least on university campuses with, for example, delivery robots. Uh, the robot might deliver a pizza or mail or packages or whatever. Uh, you have maybe uh, the idea of delivery drones so flying in the air, delivering things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so anytime you sort of let the robot out of the laboratory or out of the controlled environment, you face all kinds of challenges. And tonight, uh, technical university with lots of engineers, and uh, in, well, not all of them, but a lot of them, they think about small technical problems and you know, with small solutions, and how can you make the room to the other, let's say, because uh, it uh, has a lot of people in it. You also have to start thinking about the social of that. Uh, people behave in unexpected, unpredictable ways. They don't follow rules, um, and they uh, maybe don't want the things that you designed the robots to do. And that all can create uh, new kinds of challenges that maybe if I was an engineer designing a robot to solve a particular task, I didn't take into account. I mean, uh, to again talk about the self-driving cars case, human beings, we tend to break uh, traffic rules, we speed, we uh, drive aggressively, we uh, accelerate, sometimes not very gently, or brake not very gently. But the self-driving car, at least for, for now, is uh, an attempt to create a more sort of optimized type of driving. So you would have a robot that always follows the speed limit, uh, that uh, accelerates gently, brakes gently, uh, drives uh, you know, at, at a safe distance from other cars, etc., and if you take that kind of driving and you put it together with human driving, you, you, you have a kind of compatibility problem. And uh, a lot of the minor accidents that have, uh, including also the, the major accidents, but a lot of the accidents that have happened with self-driving cars uh, are due to a kind of mismatch between the driving styles of humans and the driving styles of self-driving cars. Hmm. And so you get this kind of question. So again, so should we adjust the self-driving cars to the humans by making them uh, you know, speed, uh, uh, disobey various traffic rules, making them drive aggressively. And you do have people that argue that, yes, this is a good idea. Uh, but then again, then you would uh, counteract this goal of creating a safer 
more environmentally friendly, uh, more optimized kind of driving. Uh, and if you want a self-driving car that drives like a human, in a way, you can just have a human do the driving. You don't have a robot uh, AI system to do it. Uh, so uh, the other option that would be to try to adjust human driving to self-driving cars. And there are ways in which you can do it. I mean, you could uh, you could put in speed uh, limiting technology into the car so that it's impossible to speed. I mean, some trucks have this. Mm-hmm. You could put in alcohol locks so that, uh, at the very least, everyone is always sober when they're driving. Yeah. Uh, you could, uh, I guess, uh, you know, punish people more severely, even more severely if they cause an accident. And in that, in those ways, make people more like robots in their driving. Uh, but we, we're going to have to do something in order to kind of adjust human driving and self-driving car, robotic driving to each other. At least during the long period that uh, a lot of experts foresee where there would be both kinds of cars on the road. It's like even if we eventually transition to only having robotic self-driving cars, uh, there's still going to be a very long period where people are still, you know, they can't afford to buy a new car. They want to use the family car. Mm-hmm. Maybe they buy a car with some degree of automation, but uh, not full automation. And so you have of uh, cars on the road uh, with more or less automation, uh, with maybe incompatible types of uh, gear and programming in them. And it might be a little bit chaotic. And, <laughs> uh, even if you then maybe, you know, you only have self-driving cars, that's going to be a long period of uh, mixed traffic before we get to that point. You've talked a little bit about the ethics of accidents and the algorithms that are used in self-driving cars that have to make a decision at some point. Perhaps you could talk about the trolley problem and how that might apply to self-driving cars. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the trolley problem is a philosophical thought experiment that uh, was, uh, I guess, created in 1967, if I remember correctly, by a philosopher called Philippa Foote. And so she imagined a scenario where there's a uh, train going around the train tracks and then uh, uh, there's a guy standing next to a switch and he can, he can see that if he, if he doesn't do anything, uh, the train is going to hit five people who are on the track. But he can pull the switch and send the train off. But uh, sadly, there's one person there. And so in order to save the five, you'd have to redirect the, the trolley uh, train uh, onto the sidetrack. And, and people are asked, you know, would you do it? A lot of people say yes. And then in order to kind of tease out uh, saving the many uh, by sacrificing the few, philosophers have come up with lots of different variations on the scene. Mm-hmm. There's one variation where rather than redirecting the, the train onto a sidetrack, you have to push someone in front of the train, a, a very heavy, large person, so that uh, the, the heavy weight of this person would sort of set off the automatic uh, brakes of the, of the train. The five on the tracks would be saved that way, but now you have to physically push on the train. So now a lot of people say you shouldn't do it. And then philosophers since then have kind of come up with like various different versions of this case. And that's been treated up until recently as a kind of purely intellectual exercise. It's going to tease out people's moral intuitions. Mm. But then uh, about five years ago, people started saying, oh, now we actually have a kind of real-world trolley problem uh, Right. that we're facing, namely uh, self-driving cars sometimes going to be uh, driving into scenarios where it's obvious to them that they, they can't simply stop because they're driving too fast. Maybe there's something wrong with the brakes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if they go straight, let's say maybe there are five people in the road. If they go on onto the sidewalk, maybe there's one there. Uh, so, you know, so what should 
self-driving car be programmed to do. Yes. Uh, or, you know, in another version of the case, you might have, let's say, one person on the street, five people in the self car. Uh, if the car keeps going straight, it's going to hit up one person. It's off the road. Uh, it's going to go off a cliff or something like that. Mm, yeah. So you can really very easily come up with sort of scenarios that, uh, I mean, of course, a lot of them are very unrealistic, but some of them might possibly more be more realistic. I and mean, so... The self-driving car might have a choice between uh, crashing into another car or going off the road, thus risking things for the person in the car. So there's a question, so, you know, should the car always uh, prioritize the safety of the, whoever's in the car or should it sometimes try to detect whether the situation calls, uh, you know, if there's a way of minimizing overall harm, which might mean that the people in the car will be sacrificed. So a lot of people have been saying, Oh, okay, so now we actually have a kind of real-world trolley problem to deal with. And, uh, well, in some of my research, and part of this because so many people had been saying that, I was asking myself, well, is it really like the trolley problem? And are the issues that were discussed in the trolley problem literature really the ones we should be focusing on? And at the very least, there are some interesting sort of disanalogies uh, between these different cases. In the philosophical thought experiment, for example, we're typically asked to only focus on a very small set of uh, aspects and scenario. You know, just focus on the fact that there are five people on the tracks. Uh, the way to save the five is to redirect the, uh, the, the train onto a side track. There's one person there. Set everything else aside and make a decision. We're asked, you know, when we're doing this in a kind of philosophy classroom. But in the real world, a real life, uh, I mean, we should take as many considerations as possible into, into consideration. Uh, and not just say, uh, let, let's just focus on a small subset of possible relevant facts. Uh, so that's sort of one big key difference. Another is that, I mean, I actually taught a class uh, as early as a couple of days ago uh, where I brought up the trolley problem because it has a nice sort of pedagogical value. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. it always happens that a student raises their hand and says, well, won't I go to jail if <laughs> I kill uh, you know, this other person or to say the five? And then in the philosophy classroom, you always say, well, let's, let's set questions about legal and moral responsibility aside, and let's just think about, you know, what you should do in this scenario. Uh, but, you know, if you're thinking about the real-world ethics of self-driving cars, you can't set uh, responsibility aside to think about it, uh, because that's obviously, whenever there's a car accident dead, there, it's always uh, when people die, there's an investigation. There's always a question uh, of whose fault it was, if anyone's fault. Uh, uh, if it was anyone's fault, uh, there's a question of should anyone be punished, held responsible for this. That's another thing that kind of clashes a little bit with the way that we use this uh, idea in the philosophy classrooms. A third thing, in the trolley problem uh, example, you assume that you know uh, all the facts with certainty. So you know that if I push the large person in front of the train, let's say, I know that it's a fine. Uh, or if I redirect the the train with the switch in the other example, I know again that I can say five, I know I have to sacrifice one. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to uh, self-driving cars and these hypothetical scenarios that they might be facing, there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we have to make risk assessments and probability assessments. Uh, and we uh, basically are planning for a scenario that may or may not. And that's another kind of relevant difference this uh, important role and certainty and risk in real life as opposed to in a philosophical thought experiment. I mean, that's not to say that the trolley problems of philosophy is wholly irrelevant, 
Uh, there are lots of interesting uh, things that have come out of that discussion. But it is just to say that we should be a little bit more careful than some uh, both academics and journalists have been before we say, oh, just like the trolley problem, uh, because there are obviously um, many more complications and complexities in real uh, life than in a philosophical thought experiment. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about human enhancement. This is becoming something that yeah. uh, is bringing up a lot of questions as well. The idea that that we can do things with technology to either enhance our own bodies, you know, change them significantly. How does that play into the work that you that you do? Yeah, I that's something I've done uh some I'm a certain amount of work on as well. So uh one interesting thing about human enhancement is that uh I mean in, in real life there's not a there are people who do what they call biohacking that mm, yeah, uh, use yeah. their own bodies as kind of uh you know experimental uh, tools they're trying to come up with ways of uh, uh, enhance themselves but in terms of more research uh, things that could possibly be used as enhancements are typically discovered as the kind of side effects uh, of other things and so uh, take something that I've looked at uh, quite a bit in my own research namely what's called deep brain stimulation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so uh, Parkinson's patients for example and other people with uh, different kinds of uh, problems uh, neurological problems uh, have sometimes uh, electrodes implanted into their brain. Okay. There's a sort of a current that stimulates certain brain loops. Uh, this can be amazing. I mean, so a person with Parkinson's can regain control over their uh, tremors and uh, kind of walk fluently and uh, talk fluently, etc. when electric current is turned on and the brain stimulation is working properly. Uh, in some people, though, uh, this has interesting side effects. Uh, and those side effects range from uh, very positive, sometimes comical, to uh, scary and uh, you know, the opposite of comical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so there was one patient uh, who found that their memory had been improved with the deep brain stimulation. Mm-hmm. Another patient, uh, the uh, Dutch patient, uh, felt much happier with the brain stimulation turned on. I mean, they were not being treated for depression. They were, I think they were being treated for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, actually, in that particular case, uh, the thing that they were trying to treat with uh, with a deep brain stimulation, it wasn't helping, uh, but the person felt much happier. And so uh, she said to her doctor, you know, leave it on because I feel so much happier now. But the doctor in that case said, no, I'm going to turn turn this off because, you know, it didn't help uh, for what we were trying to treat. It just made you happier. And I'm, I, as a doctor, am not in the business of making you happier. <laughs> so that was an interesting case where, uh, you saw kind of an, a certain kind of enhancement as a side effect, but the treatment that was aimed at did not uh, happen. Uh, another example, and I have a friend, uh, Brian Earp and uh, Julie Tavalescu, uh, they just uh, published a book about uh, what they call love enhancement. Mm, yeah. So a lot of uh, drugs that are used for other things, I mean, for example, uh, antidepressant and, uh, drugs and uh, drugs, such as the ones that are used maybe to treat uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, they also affect how we feel about the people around us. And also, uh, they can make us more trusting. They can make us, they can open us up to uh, things that we wouldn't otherwise be willing to do to talk about certain topics that say that we wouldn't otherwise be willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can change our emotions. And this 
to actually be used, uh, Erpen Savalescu argue, to maybe improve human relationships. Uh, so maybe uh, there could be a kind of love enhancement. And that's, again, that's a case where any development that we've seen that has been a kind of a side effect or discovered by accident when people have kind of been uh, trying to come up with treatments for other things. Uh, so I've been quite interested in that topic too. And the question of, uh, let's say that we actually able to develop very uh, precise ways of uh, tuning our emotions, so a little bit as if we, uh, you know, on a stereo, you know, have different dials, you can change the, the treble and the bass, etc. So that you could change the settings in your emotional life to fit your ideas of what you want. It's interesting. I mean, that, again, goes in a, a little bit in the direction of science fiction, but we can certainly influence how people feel in a more, you know, in a less precise way. You can start wondering then, uh, if I find that my uh, romantic partner, uh, I, I didn't know beforehand that they were using these love enhancement drugs, uh, uh, but it, I learned one day that indeed they are, before they started using them, uh, they couldn't really make themselves uh, feel attached to me. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people would find that to be sort of bad news. Mm. Uh, they What they want is something what they can think of as authentic. Mm, yeah. uh, of course, this raises the question of what exactly is meant by authentic love. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe in some cases, inauthentic love would be better than no love, <laughs> uh, you know, broken marriage, etc., but uh, we can also ask this question of, okay, so is this uh, all that we're wanting uh, out of, let's say, uh, love or happiness? Do we want it to be caused by, let's say, brain stimulation technology or a uh, some dr- love drug or a hormone treatment? Or do we also care about the causes? Do we want it to be, to be the case that our partners love us you know, because we are the way we are, we are who we are? Uh, do we want happiness to depend on having achieved something uh, that we think uh, makes us worthy of happiness? Uh, so I think that's one of the very interesting thing that comes up when we start thinking about technological ways of changing how we feel, how we act. Uh, we do have a lot of ideas about you know what we sh- what we deserve or what what, we, what what our behavior makes us makes us worthy of. And uh, we care about why other people think uh, what they think about us. Uh, is it because they have true beliefs about us, because they know us, or, it's because, or is it because we were able to fool them, or because they are under the influence of some drug? I think that raises sort of deep questions about what we truly care about and value uh, in our own lives, but also in our relationships with the people around us. Hmm. You've addressed the idea of sexual robots and even love perhaps, between humans and robots. Could you expand on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, there's an interesting development uh, in the world of robotics, namely the, the attempt to build uh, what are sometimes called sex robots. Uh, and uh, one very interesting development is that so there are these three companies that have been sort of in the news and that uh, whenever there's a new story about sex robots, you hear about them. Uh, one company has made a robot that they call Roxy, spelled with three X's. <laughs> Another has made a robot that they call Harmony. Uh, and a third has made a robot that they call Samantha. And even though these were developed as sex robots for sexual purposes primarily, uh, there's been a kind of interesting development. But for all of them, uh, the companies behind them are starting to suggest, well, maybe this could be more uh, than uh, something that's there for sex. Maybe it could also be something that could, uh, a robot that could be 
a romantic partner, a friend. Hmm. Uh, I mean, Roxy, uh, the website on which you can read about that robot is called True Compendium. Hmm. Uh, you can read there that uh, this robot supposedly can know your name, can get to know you, can get to like you and be a true friend. Uh, the robot uh, Harmony is also supposed to be, uh, you know, emotionally engaging with the users, so they kind of bond. And, of course, the people in this robot, they're studying human psychology and what we know about what kinds of uh, buttons you can push to make people feel attached to other human beings and trying to create sort of the robotic equivalent of that. And so it raises the question of whether... Uh, on the one hand, if there's something unethical about creating a robot that would maybe lead people to think that the robot cares about them, mm. uh, uh, I mean, this could be deceptive. It could be uh, thought to take advantage of sort of vulnerable, lonely people. Uh, it could be thought to maybe uh, make people, uh, if you say, let's say, someone gets very attached to such a robot uh, and maybe they mostly interact with it. Uh, then they might not get any training in uh, having human relationships of a kind of an intimate, romantic kind, and so they become, become sort of less able, perhaps, to have human uh, romantic relationships. That's, those are some worries that you might have. On the other hand, you might also ask, okay, could there be a different where uh, the idea of human-robot love could make sense? Hmm. And that, again, I think, raises the kind of questions that we mentioned just a moment ago when we talked about love enhancement. I mean, so what do we really want or value in love? Uh, and could you uh, achieve those things with a robot? And uh, you can ask, for example, uh, what commonly uh, associated ideas that are associated with love. And people talk about things such as being a good match, for example. Yeah. So it should be the case that, uh, well, uh, romantic partners, they, uh, you know, match for the other, and the other is also a good match for him or her. And so you can make a robot that's sort of custom-made to fit your taste and, and your likes and dislikes. Hmm. Uh, but this ideal of having a good match would also seem to suggest that, you know, you should be a good match for the robot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. So that's uh, one kind of challenge. Uh, and Another idea would be that, uh, you know, you, uh, when we value human relationships, we often think that there's a kind of commitment there. And uh, that brings up the idea of sort of free choice, because even though you maybe you want uh, your uh, partner, your lover to uh, you have certain feelings for you, you also want them maybe to commit to you. And you think that it's possible for them to do otherwise. So if you have something like a marriage ceremony and, you, you know, the person to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife or whatever, uh, there, there seems to be an element of choice there. And if you really thought that the person you're marrying had some sort of compulsion and they couldn't do otherwise, uh, and they, they, they will stick with you to, uh, like, no matter what, slavishly devoted to you, that might start looking quite different than what you are looking for when you're looking for someone to commit to you. And uh, so they would seem that the idea of a relationship involves the idea of choice. And so you might ask, could a sex robot that's supposed to love you, could it have a choice? Could it be that the sex robot might choose? Hmm. Say, no, I'm not ready to commit. Or <laughs> that it says, yeah, I yeah. could do otherwise, but I will commit. I mean, <laughs> that sounds, again, like a crazy idea. But huh. So you see that when you start thinking about these things that we value in the human case, uh, it might start looking unrealistic to think that the robot could play that role of a 
of a, of a, of a, of a romantic partner in the, in the same way that a human could, because it really requires uh, a capacity for choice, uh, the idea that, that you could be a better or worse match for someone else. And uh, so I, I find that really fascinating. So yeah, that's certainly something I've been thinking about when I think about human robots and then the human-robot interaction in the book as well. All right, there we go. That's another good place to take a break here. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. My guest tonight is Dr. Sven Nyholm, Assistant Professor of Ethics at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. You can find him online at Sven Nyholm on Twitter. And if you just want to click over there to my site, there's a big image of his new book that's called Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. It's a, a wonderful book, and you can get a look at it on the front page of my website there, and if you click on it, it'll take you right over to, over to Sven. All right, we're going to take a little break here, and I'll come back with the final 25 minutes or so of my interview with Dr. Sven Nyholm. In the meantime, we're going to hear one from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Yin Yin, and this is called Sui Ya. All right, it's Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, back in a few minutes.
All right, another one from Yin Yin. Digging the music tonight. Hope you're liking it as well. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, it's just about uh, 20 minutes after midnight now on the 2nd of June, 2020. You've joined me right in the middle of an interview that I recorded just a little bit ago with uh, Dr. Sven Nyholm from Utrecht University in the Netherlands. We are talking about uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and technology in general and some of the moral, ethical implications of such technology. Uh, Dr. Nyholm has a brand new book. It's called Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. You can find information about him on the web at Sven Nyholm on Twitter. And you can also link directly to him from my site at MikeHagan.com. All right. Uh, we're on the web streaming tonight at www.kopn.org. Appreciate you all joining me. And uh, let's get back to our interview now with Dr. Sven Nyholm. Yeah, one of the things that I had on my list here to talk with you about was the thoughts yeah. and and images in our minds about robots uh, and what they tell us about ourselves and what what it is to be human. You've talked about that a little bit. Maybe you could yeah. uh, say a few words to that. Yeah, so um, there is, for example, a Japanese a robotics researcher, um, and uh, I think if I remember correctly, his name is Hiroshi Ishiguro. Mm -hmm. And he is creating uh, robots that look like humans. I mean, one of them is a robotic copy of himself. He has also created a uh, robot that looks like a human female called Erika. And uh, when people ask him, why are you creating these human-like robots? Uh, one of the things he tends to say is that, uh, well, we, we humans can understand ourselves better uh, if we can create robots that look like us. Uh, again, uh, the robot Sophia, which is made to look like uh, humans as well, it, they too say that we can understand human beings better if we create robots that are like humans. And so I think that we, in a way, we project ideas about ourselves onto these robots that we create, at, at, at least if those robots are robots that are meant to be like humans. Of course, it's a, uh, you know, a bomb disposal robot or a self-driving car or a lawnmower, or a, you know, a vacuum cleaner. Uh, those are not going to look like humans. They're not going to act like humans. And so they're not going to be kind of a mirror for humans to look into. Uh, but I do think that there is a deep fascination that a lot of people share with the idea of creating a robot that's like a human. And uh, a lot of people find it scary, and sometimes people call about what, uh, talk about what they call the uncanny valley. Mm. This idea that if a robot is kind of like a human, but not really, uh, that's eerie, and that uh, gives rise to a kind of a, a very strange feeling of discomfort. It's familiar, yet it's, it's alien, it's, it's strange at the same time. So uh, some people do research about, you know, how can we create human-like robots that are clearly not human, but they're somewhat human-like, but that don't give rise to that uh, eerie uh, feeling that's associated with this idea of the uncanny valley. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you have mixed emotions, I think, about the idea of humanoid robots in most people, and uh, it doesn't seem possible to kind of stop uh, people from wanting and trying to create robots. And so, in a way, I think we have to try to reckon with that uh, development and think about, you know, what, how should we react to this? Uh, of course, you can ban the... I mean, some people say we should ban the uh, creation of sex robots. There's 
there's a campaign against humanoid sex robots. It's called the campaign against sex robots. And they <laughs> say, for example, that it should be uh, forbidden to create uh, robots that look like humans and are made for sexual purposes. But uh, it's going to be very hard to manage to ban that because if you have robots that are not created for sexual purposes, the idea of having sex with them seems to be something that comes up in <laughs> people's minds. I mean, in a lot of movies, uh, and and, and uh, TV series and so on, where there are humanoid robots that are not made for sexual purposes. That's the sort of thing. I mean, it's the, the movie Ex Machina, for example, or Fantastic. the TV series, yeah. uh, I think yeah. it's called Real Humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, in both of those, you have robots created for other purposes, but the human characters in them, they want to have sex with these robots. Yeah. And uh, I think that's going to be something you see. I mean, there's even a robot that doesn't look very much like a human. It's called Pepper. It looks a little bit like a, uh, I don't know, a a mix between an alien or something like that. But the instruction manual says, you know, don't try to have sex with this robot. <laughs> uh, so there is this attraction to, uh, uh, mixed feelings about, and fascination with, I think, the idea of humanoid robots, humans that look and act like, uh, look and act like humans. And so that's something that we're going to have to deal with as a society, I think. Okay. All right, let's switch gears here a little bit. I've got a few more questions for you. We haven't talked much about military applications and about how this affects the way we look at at ethics, for for example, the ethics of war or the ethics of courage, these types of things. Could you talk a little bit about military applications of AI and robotics and how uh, how this plays out in the ethical field? I think that many of these technologies are actually utilized perhaps initially uh, in the military sphere to begin with before they filter down into the, in, into the public sort of sphere. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is something, again, where people, uh, a lot of people are arguing for uh, banning certain kinds of robots, uh, so uh, what, the, what are sometimes called uh, lethal autonomous weapons systems, Yes. Uh, where the idea is that the robot or, or the AI technology would then select their targets and kill human beings. Uh, and that's something that, uh, I mean, a lot of high-profile people, both academics and uh, others, such as Elon Musk and Tesla and others, like that, uh, are arguing that these should be banned and, and banned and forbidden, uh, and that it's important to always uh, retain uh, what they call meaningful human control over mm-hmm. any uh, military technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, when people talk about this, one of the things that they sometimes say is that uh, in war, uh, it can be just uh, for human beings to kill other human beings. You know, the, uh, what some philosophers call the moral equality of different combatants, so that uh, in a war situation scenario, you know, it's, it's understood that you you might get killed and that you might uh, kill others, but there has to be a human that takes responsibility for this, and there has to be sort of a human on the other side. But if one side of the conflict starts introducing not but or human uh, people that try and kill other humans, but rather robots that take over that job, mm. then uh, that uh, fundamentally changes the idea of a a military conflict because uh, what if someone is killed and they have been selected uh, as a target by an autonomous system? Again, you get this problem of possible responsibility gap uh, where people might start saying, well, I wasn't responsible because the the target was selected by a machine. I mean, the military setting in a way uh, makes it a little bit easier to deal with these responsibility issues just because it's such a structured 
part of human life. I mean, like the military has a very uh, clear uh, sort of uh, hierarchy where some people have what is called command responsibility over others. So uh, if soldiers do things, uh, then sometimes commanders are held responsible because they have the ultimate responsibility. And uh, I think you can see how we could use some of that uh, machinery from, uh, you know, theories of uh, command responsibility in the case uh, in the domain of uh, military robotics. So if a, a, role, a human commander uh, deploys a, a lethal autonomous weapon system and that system kills a human being, you could still have the commander, I think, be responsible because there's this command structure in the, in the, in the, in the organization. I mean, you couldn't really imagine, I think, uh, a military robot that's sort of operating on its own. It's always going to be part of a, a team. So hmm. even if you did have uh, some sort of high degree of functional autonomy, meaning that it can operate on its own for certain periods of time, there are always going to be humans who decide to use those, who maybe decide to discontinue the use of robots, and who maybe try to update them and, and change their settings, etc., uh, based on uh, you know how they think that they perform in the in the in the in the field, so to speak. So I, I worry maybe a bit less about uh, responsibility issues than some, than some others uh, looking at the ethics do. I do think that there is an interesting question of whether it should ever be permitted to have a robot uh, that's uh, designed to kill human beings. Uh, and some people make a interesting uh, comparison here with the case of the self-driving car, because the self-driving car will predictably sometimes kill human beings. Uh, but that's a side effect, not intended, mm. uh, but merely predicted. So, uh, well, they have already killed humans. They have died inside of self-driving cars, and they've hit by self-driving cars. Uh, but, of course, none of this was intentional. Uh, the intention is to create a safer type of car where fewer people will be killed, and uh, there will be some accident scenarios. So that's quite different than creating a robot that's specifically designed to kill humans. And uh, certainly in a lot yeah. of common sense, ethical thinking, and also in some doctrines that are you know, widely discussed in philosophy, theology, etc., there's something double effect. So uh, where people say it's sometimes okay to injure others if it's a, it's a side effect that you didn't intend uh, because you were trying to pursue some good aim, you were trying to save someone's life, you were trying to save... Um, uh, you know, you're trying to achieve something good, and then, uh, you know, you couldn't but uh, accidentally kill someone on the bed. You would, let's say they're driving really fast to get to the, you know, to the hospital, and someone sets in front of your car, and you accidentally kill someone. That, that, that's, that's a side effect that could happen if you drive really fast with a car. Mm. But if you create a robot, or you have a human being who just, whose main aim or main goal it is to kill <laughs> others, then... You can't say that, oh, it's merely an, uh, a foreseen side effect. It's merely something that we knew might happen, but, you know, we didn't want to achieve. Right. Now you're designing a technology that mentally uh, seek out targets and, and kill them. I mean, that's a lot of people think who think about this topic. That, you know, we should draw a line there. That's not something that you would want. Um, so if humans are going to be killed by anyone that's going to be by humans who can take responsibility mm. and uh, maybe who kill them in self-defense or something like that. But uh, the more you have a machine that's making that decision and the more it's designed for that purpose and that purpose only, the more controversial it becomes. Okay. 
All right, just a couple more questions for you here. I'm in manufacturing. Sure. When I don't do ra- when I don't do radio, I do some quality control work for a manufacturer yeah. here, and I've seen a lot of changes in manufacturing over the last 25 years or so. Uh, to the point where automation and robotics are making a major impact. Could you talk a little bit about the future of work and how uh, the ethics of technology sort of plays in the uh, in the field of employment? Yeah, so uh, there are various different scenarios that one can think about to discuss. I mean, so one very extreme scenario that... Uh, uh, I mean, a friend of mine, John Danaher, is quite interested in this scenario where automation and robotics take over m- most work tasks, and so she would have uh, very little work left over for humans to do, so that would be what's sometimes called technological unemployment. Mm. Uh, but you also have uh, what I maybe think are more realistic scenarios where people are still working, but they are working very closely with various kinds of machines and, and robotics, uh, automated uh, technologies, and uh, that might mean, again, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that you know you have to make the environment robot-friendly, mm-hmm. and so it means that ultimately you get better outcomes in terms of faster delivery of packages, a better uh, you know product being manufactured, uh, but you actually have a person who now performs a much less uh, stimulating, they have less freedom to kind of design their own, uh, you know, how they do to follow the machine, because otherwise, you know, you're not going to get those outcomes before. Uh, so you might have less freedom in how you work. You might uh, have less contact with other human work- workers because you're mostly interacting with machine all day long. And so you start maybe chipping away at some of the things that we associate with meaningful work, such as creativity, the freedom to... Uh, to kind of craft your own uh, job, how do you do it, mm-hmm. the uh, contact with your uh, co-workers. And so that, in a way, is a kind of very negative scenario, how things might develop. Uh, I mean, in one of my uh, papers that I've written with some co-authors, we looked at, you know, okay, those are threats to meaningful work that might come out of automation and robotics. I mean, could there also be opportunities for meaningful work? And uh, at least in theory, you can imagine things. For example, you might, uh, in order to be able to work with some new robotics or new machinery, you might need to acquire new skills. You might need to take on more responsibility because uh, now you are not only responsible for what you do, you're also responsible maybe for what a robot is doing that you're working with. Uh, and again, you have to maybe learn some new skills. And so these are the kinds of things, uh, you know, learning new skills, taking on new responsibilities that are also sometimes associated with meaningful work. So uh, there's, a, there's a potential for some aspects of this to actually create opportunities for new kinds of meaningful work. I mean, we looked in our research, me and my colleagues, both at uh, this from a sort of philo- philosopher's uh, armchair perspective, if you will. We thought about uh, opportunities and, and threats to meaningful work. But we also had a, a psychology postdoc working with us uh, who went out and looked at how things are in uh, Dutch uh, uh, warehouses where they're using more and more robotics. And mm-hmm. there, of course, it was easier to identify threats to meaningful work than it was to identify as proof of, the, of opportunities for meaningful work. And uh, where there was seemed to be uh, improvements, uh, there seemed to be mostly on the level of management as opposed to the people who are sort of lower down in the work hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that automation and robotics n- need to lead to uh, 
uh, less meaningful work, but uh, we really have to make choices to, to have a sort of human-focused uh, perspective on this and not just technology-driven developments where we're just asking, you know, how can we be uh, the most efficient in terms of producing outcomes, pure, cheaper, faster, etc., and make the humans adapt to this. Uh, if we want people to also have access to meaningful work, we may need to also think in terms of, and you know, can we slow down this? Is it really necessary that all packages that they are delivered as quickly as they are these days? Can we, uh, do we really need uh, all the products to be perfect? I mean, in some domains of life, people sort of actually value some certain degrees of variation and imperfection. Uh, and uh, the human touch, as we talk, the personal touch, as we sometimes call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, so in a way, it's a kind of a clash between ideals. So on the one hand, you have uh, efficiency, uh, speed, uh, uniformity in outputs. On the other hand, you have some things such as, uh, you know, interesting variations, uh, maybe doing things more carefully, uh, having uh, the work uh, that humans do that produces meaningful and, uh, of course, if you're looking at things from a kind of management perspective, uh, just if you're trying to make you, the organization be, uh, you know, make not uh, lose too much money and have everything be quick, uh, then at first glance it might seem like a good idea to just go for the technology-driven, technology-oriented perspective. But on the other hand, actually, if you look at organizations where workers have more uh, where employees have more uh, freedom and more creativity, that also tends to lead to happier uh, employees, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. people becoming more creative, uh, becoming more uh, maybe, let's say, loyal to the organization, more willing to work for it, etc. So in the long term, it's not necessarily always going to be the case that what looks like yeah, the, the quick uh, technology-driven solution is going to uh, yield the best outcomes. But so I think we really have to make sort of choices and think about how we allow some of these uh, developments to, to go. And, and we, should, we, sh- we shouldn't view it as a kind of uh, development that necessarily always in every domain leads to more automation, more uh, robotics. Uh, in some domains, it might make things worse and not actually improve things, neither from a point of view of the services, the goods offered, nor from the point of view of sort of uh, job satisfaction for the people working in these different organizations. Yeah, okay. Uh, as a side note, I, I've spoken with John Danaher. I'm very impressed and I very thought-provoking stuff that he that he does. Absolutely. Let's kind of finish off with uh, more of a philosophical thing. I would consider you a, a scholar when it comes to Immanuel Kant, and you have a very interesting paper on. Uh, well, I'm not sure if it's your website, but at any rate, uh, Kant's Universal Law Formula Revisited is something that you wrote a couple years ago, and perhaps you could yeah. visit that a little bit with the listeners and uh, and explain why you think it's important. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, Kant has this idea that ethics should be about uh, a good person, someone who has their principles to try to live in a kind of principled way and follow certain rules that they adopt for themselves. And then the idea that Kant had was, okay, well, that seems good. And then, you know, how do I choose principles that I'm supposed to be following uh, in order to be a kind of a good, virtuous person? Well, a good idea seems to be to choose principles that you would be willing to lay down as universal laws for all people. So that it's not only the case that you take this on board as the principles that you want to live by. You should also ask how would these other people also made this, these principles into their principles? Would you be kind of happy with that scenario that your principles are also shared by others? And this, on the face of it, 
I mean, in a way, it's kind of an updated version of the golden rule, you know, the way that you treat other people uh, should match with, with how you want them to treat you. What can add the idea of the principles that you adopt for yourself should also be principles that you would be willing to lay down as a rule for other people. Seems like a great idea, uh, very intuitive, uh, but uh, philosophers haven't been kind of, uh, well, it's almost an occupational hazard that we always feel an itch to come up with counterexamples. <laughs> uh, we always feel that we, uh, in order to, to, to sort of engage critically with something, we have to think about strange cases where if you follow the suggested rules, things uh, somehow, uh, you know, are, they get bizarre, it can be counterintuitive, etc. And uh, certainly uh, this Kantian idea of uh, principles uh, that you lay down are willing to treat as universal laws. And that's a kind of key target of a lot of interesting counterexamples that people have tried to cook up. And uh, some of that discussion uh, has kind of not necessarily taken Kant's own uh, uh, explanations what he means by this idea as a starting point, but rather uh, an, uh, kind of a desire to find uh, strange counterexamples and scenarios where this seems to be a bad idea. So people say things such as, well, you know, if I adopted as a personal uh, principle that, let's say, uh, people of my own race, they should be treated uh, better than people of other races. Uh, well, if I'm a member of that particular race, then I maybe, I, perhaps I could want this to be universal law because that would benefit people like me, but it would certainly be uh, terrible for people of other races. So the question is, does the Kantian ideal of you know, living on current principles that you would like to lay down as universal law, would it sanction this? Would it say that, yes, this is morally okay? And obviously that seems to be deeply immoral. Uh, so that's one example of this kind of counterexample that mm. comes up with. Other examples are things such as, well, if I am, if I just describe a very complicated rule, you know, let's say I'm allowed to rob people who wear a certain kind of pair, type of jeans, you know, who walk in a certain street, <laughs> and you know, who wear a certain kind of baseball cap or whatever. You can devise a rule that's so rare that uh, there's only basically one opportunity to act on it, namely the one that you're facing right now. And you can say, yeah, I want this to be a universal law because now I can rob this person, and so. Everyone could do it, and well, most people wouldn't have an opportunity to do it, but it's, uh, that's another kind of uh, counterexample that people have discussed, like creating these really complicated rules that seem to apply only to you and mm. that would give you kind of a, a license to do whatever you want. Right, right. But, and so I was interested in how this seems to be taken, uh, taking this idea uh, very far away, maybe from what Kant himself uh, intended and wanted to, to achieve by formulating that more ideal, uh, and uh, kind of just twisting it around too much in a way. So I wanted to go back and look at sort of all of the key terms that uh, Kant uh, introduces when he talks about, I mean, when he talks about principles, he calls them maxims. I mean, that's a kind of old-fashioned word. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he talks about uh, a sort of an ideal that he calls the kingdom of ends, where everyone relates to each other on the basis of shared principles in a way that uh, he thinks would mean uh, mutual respect, uh, treating everyone in a dignified way. And if you start looking at all of these things that uh, he describes as what he's looking for, then something like, uh, you know, racist principles, they just don't fit in anymore because we wouldn't have a, a 
community of people uh, on shared principles. Everyone is treating it, uh, everyone in a kind of dignified way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't have a scenario where people would make these exceptions for themselves, so that they, they you know, the formally complicated rules, so that they can say, "Well, I'm following the rule. I would be willing to lay down for everyone, but it's been tailor-made to your interests." That seems to clash with the more general ideals that uh, Kant put forth, put forward in his, uh, you know, general theory about. Uh, I mean, he also has another. The famous rule, which is uh, like, he says that we should always treat the humanity in each person always as an end in itself and never as a mere mean. Mm. Uh, and he claims that this idea of acting on principles that you'd be willing to lay down as universal laws, in a way, is the other side of the coin from that other idea of treating people as ends and never as mere means. And so it seems to me that when you try to interpret what Kant many talks about these different principles, you know, you want to interpret those ideas in relation to each other so that you can get. You can spell out an ideal that would really fit with this idea of not instrumentalizing others, treating them with dignity, respect, etc. And a lot of the counterexamples that have been formulated against that uh, first principle that we talked about, they don't seem to take into account that that's what he was trying to achieve. So I've been quite interested in trying to reconstruct what exactly it was. And on the one hand, I think he ends up with a very attractive idea. But it, it's more like an ideal, a practical uh, rule that you could follow in every scenario. So, like, if you're thinking about uh, how to, let's say, program a self-driving car to get to the effect of the previous discussed example, mm-hmm. uh, what it should do in an accident scenario, it's not so clear to me that you could actually use the idea of following a principle that you want to be universal law as, as a direct decision-making procedure to just kind of decide exactly what the right answer is. It's more like an ideal, okay, you want whatever rules you choose to be ones that you, you know, that would treat everyone equally, that would respect people's uh, dignity, etc., not treat them as mere means. And what exactly that means in practice, for that you might need to move to some other kind of principle that is more general ideal that uh, someone like Kant describes as uh, general uh, moral philosophy. Okay. Wow, I tell you, interesting times we are living in, Dr. Sven. Um, Let's uh, let's wrap it up, and yeah. and uh, we'll mention your book once again. You have a new book that's called Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. Uh, if people are interested in your book or other stuff related to your work, how how is the best, uh, or what's the best way for them to find information about you? Do you have contact information or Twitter, or what would you like, sir? Uh, yeah, I, I guess actually Twitter would be the best, uh, uh, easiest way to find out what I'm doing, because whenever I... I do something new, such as, for example, appearing on your show, or, <laughs> or you know, I, I have a book out, or you know, paper out, or a video I'm participating in, or something like that. I always put up a link on Twitter, and I, I think I'm the only one. I am on there, so, uh, and it's certainly if you look for, you know, I think my Twitter handle is this at Ben Nyholm, my name. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a good place to go. I mean, the book you can already order it from Amazon if you're so inclined. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so Twitter would be the place I would recommend. Okay, very good. Well, I sure appreciate your time. You're doing really interesting and important work. I hope we can stay in touch, and as this stuff moves forward, maybe we can uh, do an update now and again down the road. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me on the show. You bet. You take care of yourself, Dr. Sven Nyholm. Take care, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, Dr. Sven Nyholm. He is an assistant professor of philosophy and ethics at Utrecht University. That is in the Netherlands. And he's got a wonderful new book, Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. You can find him on the web at Sven Nyholm on Twitter. And you can link there directly from my site uh, from here on out. All right, great stuff. I appreciate Dr. Sven spending some time with me. 
and uh, you all as well. Hope you enjoyed that. And let's take a little break here, play a little piece of music. You can all grab a glass of water or a beer or something or whatever you do. And we'll come back and we'll do a little space weather and maybe open the phone, see if anybody wants to talk about anything. It's uh, a little before 1 o'clock in the morning now on the 2nd of June, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. All right, it's Mike Hagan, and I'll be back with you in just a few minutes.
right, there you go. It's another one from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Yin Yin. You're listening to it here on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, streaming on the web at kopn.org. My name is Mike Hagan. Good to be with you all tonight. Just had a fascinating interview uh, brought to you uh, tonight. Uh, Dr. Sven Nyholm, he's a professor there at a university up in the Netherlands, uh, Utrecht University, as a matter of fact, and uh, very interesting conversation with Dr. Nyholm. If you missed it, check it out on the web next week sometime, okay? All right, uh, before we get too much further, let's say that this program is supported in part by Pizza Tree Pizza. Pizza Tree offers pizza by the slice, specialty pies, and delivery. Pizza Tree is located at 909 Cherry Street and is open 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. daily. Actually, they're not open on Monday. But anyway, more info is available at pizzatree.com or on Facebook. All right. um, I also want to mention that uh, we are having a one-day pledge drive tomorrow. Not Tuesday. It's already Tuesday. Um, On Wednesday, June 3rd. And uh, I'd like to uh, encourage everyone to try to help the station out. Donate whatever you can, as much as you can. Uh, It's a very difficult time for lots of small businesses. And uh, it's a difficult time for KOPN as well. I mean, it's a difficult time for everybody right now, obviously. Um, And economically, uh, you know, it's a challenge unless you're just a super wealthy person, I guess. But anyway, there aren't many of them around here at KOPN, and we could really use a help, uh, a helping hand on June the 3rd. Uh, we'll be doing some special broadcasting all day. You'll hear some familiar voices, and uh, they'll all be kind of echoing the same message. Uh, do what you can to help your community radio station at a time when, uh, when they really need it. So uh, June the 3rd, please tune in to KOPN anytime during the day, all day. And consider a donation to help the station stay the station. Okay. Uh, What do we got? Five minutes before midnight. No, not midnight. Five minutes before one in the morning. All right. So, but we'll do space weather at the top of the hour here. Um, I will say that uh, there are lots of things to talk about in the news. Last week, it was all COVID. This week, uh, very little COVID uh, on, on, on Monday, if you go scrolling through the news this morning. It doesn't mean it's still not news. It's just not as prominent as it was a week ago for, uh, for reasons that I'm sure you're all familiar with. And we can talk about that on the telephone and on the radio if you so choose. So uh, we'll do space weather here in a few minutes, but I'm going to open the phone lines as well. 573-443-7380, 573-443-8255. Both those numbers are available if you'd like to call and uh, participate in the program here. Anything you'd like to talk about, including current events and your position or uh, observations, uh, experiences, whatever. Very interested in hearing what you got to say out there. And uh, I'm fascinated by uh, by the whole thing and appalled at the same time. And uh, I so many different emotions. And it's just a really, really unbelievable time right now. So anyway, please... Uh, Feel free to call and share your opinion or your perspectives, all that stuff with me, okay? 573-443-7380, 573-443-8255. 
8255. I'd love to hear what's on your mind, okay? All right, uh, what else? Uh, let's mention Dr. Sven Nyholm one more time on the web at Sven Nyholm. That's on Twitter. And if you go to MikeHagan.com, you can click on the picture of his book that's right there on the front page, and that'll take you over to his Twitter feed as well. And if you're interested in getting the book, uh, there's lots of uh, links at that point to uh, to connect you up with it, okay? All right, yeah, interesting stuff uh, from Dr. Nyholm and the the sort of whole... Uh, field of uh, ethics in regard to technology is really one that uh, that that has sparked my interest, and I'm doing my best to speak with a lot of the folks that are that are doing work in uh, in in that field and and, and those uh, ideas. Okay, uh, space weather. Let's start with uh, the sun, like we always do. The sun is still blank with no sunspots. We're going on 30 days now, actually 31 days if we can make it through today. Uh, 31 days straight, that would be without, uh, without any sunspots on the, on the disk. Um, there is, though, uh, evidence that there might be something coming into view pretty soon there. There was a, a pretty good-sized B-class flare uh, that happened earlier uh, uh, on um, on Monday, just a, just a little while ago, but earlier in the day, on Monday. Now, a B-class flare is nothing to do, to get too excited about. They go up in uh, uh, along the alphabet as they go up in intensity. So we have uh, oftentimes uh, M-class flares is the next uh, sort of significant rating, and and even M-class flares are nothing uh, really uncommon. Certainly during solar minimum, they might be, uh, and that's where we're at right now. But um, a B-class flare is nothing to get excited about. We've seen, we've seen X-class flares uh, in the past. We've seen flares that have literally blown the, uh, blown the dials off of the uh, instruments that, that, that record this stuff. In fact, they had to create a whole other sort of level back in 2007, I think it was. Um, at any rate, uh, there is evidence that there might be uh, a new active region on the sun which will be rotating around and turn toward earth later this week and if that's the case maybe we'll see a sunspot or two on the solar disk don't count on it though it might uh, you know it's possible for flares to uh, erupt without the existence of of a sunspot so anyway that's happening on the sun not much else uh, a new discovery um that well, I guess it, it was first discovered about a year ago, but been confirmed now over the last months. Um, you know, if you look at the tops of thunderstorms, you can often see interesting, uh, interesting phenomenon. We've talked on the program before about what they call sprites and pixies, and they even have, it's weird they use these sort of uh, creatures of the woods sort of terms for these things, sprites, trolls, elves, pixies, that type of thing. But uh, those are all uh, descriptions of exotic phenomena that have surprised uh, people who investigate this type of stuff since the mid-1980s. And there's a new one that came into the astronomical sphere about a year ago, and they call them green ghosts. So now there's a guy, his name is Thomas Ashcraft, who was <clears throat> observant enough and patient enough to get some remarkable 
uh, video and uh, still photographs of uh, something that happened over New Mexico on May the 25th. And if you go to spaceweather.com or to my site at the at the um, uh, at the Radio Orbit forum, you can actually watch the video of what Mr. Ashcraft filmed. But at any rate, there was a very cool sort of jellyfish sprite that he got on film. And then he also noticed that uh, above, on the top parts of the sprites, that there were uh, sort of um, green uh, sort of haze hue over the top. Now, this was originally discovered about a year ago by a Houston... Uh, based, and that's Texas, Houston-based uh, storm chaser whose name is Hank Shima. And he is also known online as the Pecos Hank, or uh, as Pecos Hank, I guess. And anyway, this was back in May of 2019 that Hank Shima said that he had recorded some sprites over a storm in Oklahoma. And when he reviewed the footage, he noticed a mysterious green afterglow above some of the larger sprites. And this is the same thing that uh, Ashcraft, uh, that Thomas Ashcraft was able to, uh, to get some film of uh, just a couple of nights ago. Now, originally, Mr. Shima um, was, was facing a lot of skepticism um, because uh, they put some of their images up on social media and no one had ever heard of that before. And people were arguing that it was a camera after effect, some sort of lens flare or a sensor problem or whatever. But over the, uh, the following uh, months, Paul Smith, who was a guy who was actually working really closely with Hank Shima, um, they got a bunch of high-resolution images of these so-called ghosts that pretty much silenced the skeptics. And... For now, no one really knows exactly what causes these things. Their color might be a clue. Um, if you have seen Aurora Borealis, uh, oftentimes those images are green, and uh, oftentimes that color comes from oxygen. So that may be uh, the same for green ghosts. We're not really sure yet. But, yeah, never know. Uh, the hypothesis inspired the name uh, ghost, and that is an acronym for Green Emissions for Excited Oxygen in Sprite Tops. Boy, they really stretch it, don't they? Anyway, Hank Shima tells us, uh, more importantly, they were named ghosts to maintain the theme of other transient luminous events such as sprites, elves, trolls, and pixies. All right, interesting stuff. Uh, what else we got here? The All-Sky Fireball Network. We've had four sporadic fireballs over the course of the last 24 hours or so. As I mentioned often enough, NASA and many other space agencies operate cameras and software that is uh, constantly scanning the skies out and beyond the Earth and uh, outside of our atmosphere and, of course, inside our atmosphere as well. Um, and they're looking for things that might be heading our way. And there's a category of those objects that are called potentially hazardous asteroids. There's a larger group that are called near-Earth asteroids. The potentially hazardous asteroids are, are larger uh, objects that are among these near-Earth objects and also ones that, uh, that can come really close uh, to our planet and intersect with our orbit. 
Um, I'm looking at the list right now. Hey, they changed it. They must have heard me last week. Remember I told you there were only 2018 potentially hazardous asteroids? Well, it had been like that for quite some time. They had not updated that list for quite a while. Now, as of June 2nd, 2020, there were 2,037. So they added 19 potentially hazardous asteroids over the course of the last few months since I last updated you. So we'll have to make a marker of that. They changed that on June the 2nd, and we'll see when they change it again, all right? Anyway, so they're constantly identifying these types of things, and they'll find them, uh, you know, either in an official uh, capacity, like uh, one of these uh, NASA cameras, but also they can be identified by, um, you know, by independent and amateur astronomers. That happens often enough with discovery of lots of different objects, including comets and uh, um, uh, gamma ray bursts and uh, supernova and things like that. So anyway, on the list of uh, upcoming Earth asteroid encounters, there are quite a few that come reasonably close here in June. We've got a we got a real close brush with one this afternoon, as a matter of fact. Uh, an asteroid designated 2020 KK7, which is about 20 meters across at its longest point. And that's going to come about 1.3 lunar distances away from the planet. So, you know, it's not, not, not quite 300,000 miles. But again, in cosmic terms, that's just a brush. So it's going to come pretty close. Last week... We had two asteroids that actually came inside of the orbit of the moon. One was uh, actually quite close, 0.4 lunar distances uh, from the planet. And then we had another one, uh, another one that was 0.6 lunar distances. That, and that's inside the, the orbit of the moon, right? So 0.4 lunar distances would be a, you know, a little bit less than half. The moon's at about 240,000 miles, so you're talking 120,000 miles away. That's almost considered atmosphere. Um, luckily, these are small asteroids and nothing really to be too concerned about, even if they did uh, enter the atmosphere. But just to show you, you know, that stuff happens. They do come pretty close, and in this case, they were just very small stones. So um, a few uh, large ones have hit the planet back uh, over the course of history, and uh, the results are... Always stunning and staggering if you're around at the time. If you're a species that's living at the time, it's going to be very tough going for a while. But it's also uh, a punctuation point where um, new species then uh, begin to have their shot because the environment changes so greatly that uh, only, you know, the strong and the smart can make it. And a lot of times an environmental change will, will eliminate a whole bunch of, uh, you know, individuals of particular species and sometimes the entire species. So anyway, it's happened in the past. Hopefully that <laughs> we've had enough stuff going on, right? We don't need a, We don't need an asteroid impact. We've got COVID-19 and now we've got just a major unrest and social discord all around the country. And it's a, Real difficult situation. So let's not let's not have any big stones coming our way at the same time, okay? All right. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, what's going to be happening this week. Tonight, actually, um, we are in Missouri, which is central daylight time right now. And 
That means uh, tonight at about 10.30, 10.38 to be exact, the moon will reach perigee. And at perigee, that means that the moon is as close to our planet as it ever gets. And at perigee, the moon is about 226,406 miles from the Earth. It'll be in Virgo tonight, and there are a couple of uh, sort of conspicuous stars that you can use uh, the moon to identify. Spica is up there. Um, Spica is uh, a very bright star that is in the constellation Virgo. And then you have Arcturus, which is about 33 degrees or so above Spica in the sky, and it's one of the nightest, uh, one, of the, one of the nightest brights in the star. <laughs> It's one of the night's brightest stars. Uh, Arcturus is in the constellation Boots. So some good star watching tomorrow night. Wednesday, Venus is in inferior conjunction uh, about 1 o'clock in the afternoon Missouri time on Wednesday. What this means is that Venus and Earth are both on the same side of the sun. So if you can imagine the Earth and then, uh, you know, if you're above the 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 disc of uh, <clears throat> uh, the plane of the ecliptic, you could look down and you could see the sun in the middle, and then you'd see uh, you wouldn't see um, uh, Mercury right now, but you would see Venus essentially lined up with the Earth, both on the same side of the sun. Uh, they call that inferior conjunction. That can only happen with uh, with objects that are inside the orbit of the Earth. So with regard to planets, it can only involve uh, the planet Venus or the planet Mercury. Both of those can have an inferior conjunction. Uh, outside of the planet of the Earth, uh, I'm, I, f- I forget the term for it. I don't think it's exterior conjunction, but it's something similar to that when you have a lineup with planets that are outside the orbit of the Earth. But at any rate, uh, there's going to be an inferior conjunction of Venus and Earth to this afternoon. I'm sorry, tomorrow afternoon at about 1 o'clock on Wednesday, all right? Wednesday will also mark the 50th anniversary of the first spacewalk that American astronauts ever did. It was completed by a man whose name was Ed White, and it happened during the Gemini 4 mission. Now, on... um, on Wednesday night, you can see uh, the same constellation, or at least the one that's named after, or the, uh, the mission was named after, Gemini, the twins. That'll be in the west-northwest, and there are a couple of real bright stars associated with Gemini. That's Castor and Pollux, and they'll be essentially side-by-side side above the horizon, maybe, maybe 20 degrees above the uh, ecliptic, and uh, maybe an hour or so after sunset. All right, on Thursday, Mercury will be at its greatest eastern elongation. Uh, Good to be viewing Mercury on Thursday, June 4th. The planet won't set until about two hours after sunset. Um, It's not going to be very high in the sky, but um, about an hour after the sun sets, uh, just above the horizon, you'll see the 0.4 magnitude planet of Mercury. And it'll be below Castor and Pollux that I just mentioned uh, that, that that you can find real easily on the night before. Um, but anyway, it'll be sinking in the west-northwest as it gets a little bit darker. And you'll have to, again, 
uh, take a look for Mercury about 15 degrees below Castor and Pollux, and that'll be just a little bit after after twilight. All right. Okay. Um, anything going on on Friday? Well, I guess you got full moon on Friday. Uh, it actually happens on Friday afternoon, about 2:12 in the afternoon here in Missouri, 3:12 Eastern time. There's also going to be what's called a penumbral lunar eclipse that will happen on Friday. Uh, it really isn't visible uh, to observers in the United States or Canada or really even much of South America, um, the eastern portion perhaps of South America, as well as Africa, Australia, Europe, and most of Russia will be able to view all or part of the event. A, uh, a penumbral eclipse is an eclipse that occurs when the moon passes through, well, there's a lighter part of the Earth's shadow. It's sort of like the edge of the Earth's shadow, if you can sort of imagine that. But they call it the penumbra. And it'll cause a shading effect on the moon, but the moon won't go completely dark. So that's why they call it a penumbral eclipse, because it's just sort of on the edge of the shadow. And, uh, well, or the shadow doesn't darken the moon completely. So... Anyway, that's what's happening this week in the skies above our heads. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, let's take a break here and play a piece of music. We'll come back, open the phone lines again. We'll go through the news and see if we can get any of you to call and uh, give me a load of whatever's on your mind. It's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. We're streaming on the web at kopn.org. And for me, you can find information on... Uh, uh, on the web at www.mikehagen.com. All right, for music tonight, we've been listening to a band that's called Yin Yin. I want to send a shout-out to my friend Seth, who is always, is always right there when you need him uh, to come up with new music. And he certainly did not disappoint in this recent suggestion. Great advice from my buddy Seth. Music from Yin Yin tonight. They're based out of the Netherlands. And... Uh, Great stuff. We're going to hear another one from them right now. This one is called Alpaca Mountain. I'll tell you a little bit about the band before we do that, though. They're actually, I mentioned that they're from the Netherlands, which was exactly what I was looking for because Dr. Sven Nyholm, of course, was was uh, speaking to us from the Netherlands. But anyway, they, they kind of mix it up a little bit. They got some psychedelic influences, obviously. They got some real danceable stuff. I heard some Asian influences in there for sure. And, uh, man, a little disco, some funk, electronica, I don't know, a whole bunch of different stuff mixed in there, makes it some really cool music. And again, I'm glad that we got a chance to share it with you tonight. Let's hear again one from Yin Yin. This is called Alpaca Mountain. You're listening to it here. It's Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia.
cool stuff. Yeah, once again, great stuff there from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Yin Yin. You listen to it here. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan, and this is Radio Orbit. All right, uh, let's see what's happening in the news. Let me go to Twitter here and say hi. Okay, hi, everybody. There are 35 people online at the forum. I appreciate that. Hi to everybody over there. If you're listening over the web, I can actually, you know, I haven't done that for a while. I should pull up the listener map and see see who's online and where they're listening from. I can say hello to a few people. Oh, there's enough people listening. We got people over there in Europe. We got somebody over there in India listening. I'm not sure who they are, but anyway, a bunch of people across the U.S. here. And uh, uh, a few people listening in Japan. And um, sure. Anyway, hello. Appreciate everybody out there, and I hope you're doing well in this uh, very interesting time in Earth history. <laughs> really, I mean, it isn't a, a, a nation-state sort of thing right now. I think everybody's facing their own challenges and uh, difficulties right now, and I'm uh, doing my, my best just to kind of keep my eye on and document it and uh, talk about it as much as I can. I'd like to talk about it with you all. If, uh, if you'd like to join the conversation here, please uh, do so. The number is here, 573-443-7380. No, I'm sorry, 573-443-8255. Once again, that's 573-443-7380 or 573-443-8255. Anything you'd like to talk about, whether it's riots in the streets, uh, whether it's the uh, the murder of George Floyd, whether it is uh, Dr. Sven Nyholm and the work that uh, he's doing. Maybe you want to talk about the conversation we had earlier today. Maybe it's something unrelated. Uh, whatever it is, uh, please feel free and uh, give me a call at 573-443-7380 or 443-8255, okay? All right, in the meantime... <clears throat> I will uh, start at the top of my list here on the Radio Orbit Forum, and I will go through some of the news stories that, uh, that we have. Um, the top one is something I just posted at the beginning of the show, and it's a new paper that has been released just in the last week or two by um, Dr. Gregor Wolbring. And Dr. Wolbring, of course, was on the program a few months ago, and he's a remarkable, uh, remarkable gentleman. And he has written a paper now called uh, COVID-19. It's aftermath and disabled people. What is the connection to ethics? Very interesting paper. Well, there's a whole bunch of things here that I'm, not, I'm sort of not going to go into. But anyway, uh, it's, it's more of an academic article. And I think if you're interested in it, uh, you should check it out. It's COVID-19, it's aftermath, and disabled people. A new paper on the web from Gregor Wolbring, and you can read that on uh, the Radio Orbit forum, okay? Then I put a comment up last night, and I was watching uh, online, and I am again right now um, watching different cities and uh, the uh, demonstrations and protests, and in some cases, riots that were occurring all around the country. 
and I'm doing it again right now. Looks like Minneapolis is still there's quite a bit going on there. Uh, Portland, Oregon, um, or is it Portland, Maine? I'm not sure it says Portland, but we'll have to check that out. Uh, Providence, Rhode Island. I may turn the audio on at some point here if I get the courage. Um, San Diego, California. Providence, Rhode Island, I mentioned. Milwaukee, Washington, D.C. So still quite a bit of unrest out there. And, you know, the response, all of it is just absolutely... uh, Appalling. Um, what happened to Mr. Floyd was absolutely disgusting and appalling, and those officers should have been arrested, in my opinion. All of them, uh, the three that were watching, and and the uh, and of course the one who was uh, putting his weight and his knee on that man's neck. The response has been frightening. And in some cases appropriate, in some cases not so much. I do understand the frustration and the uh, anger that comes from these types of events. I don't think that destroying private property and people's businesses and 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 things like that is 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 the right thing to do though I know sometimes things just get out of hand um, uh, but the whole situation is just really unbelievable and then of course you have the police response which is becoming more and more militarized I mean gosh I mean it's frightening you know to see the uh, uh, the military presence and the equipment and the uh, just the sort of mindset attitude uh gosh i don't know all right portland oregon looks like there um las vegas nevada anyway uh again if you'd like to talk about it love to hear your thoughts 573-443-7380 573-443-8255 just heartbreaking all this stuff on top of this freaking pandemic uh, pandemic right and this is also also a thing i'm 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 watching the live feed right now from many of these uh, different cities and I mean why did why did we all stay in our homes for three months and now in all of the big cities really in all of the big cities you have huge groups of people certainly not uh, <laughs> paying any attention to so-called social distancing I suppose some of them are wearing masks some of them, many of them not. Uh, of course, with the masks, or we ought to know by now, their effect is questionable. Unless you have a real good one and it's fitted properly, that's the only way you're really protected. This stuff can enter from your ears, from your eyes, all that. So anyway, it seems that, uh, that the COVID-19 pandemic may also see a bump now. Uh, we'll have to see what what the uh, what the situation looks like in a couple, three or four weeks, um, if there's a major spike in COVID uh, infection and hospitalization and death uh, because of of some of the interaction that's happening 
uh, over the last few days in, 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 in many of these large, large protests. Um, anyway, absolutely crazy. And, you know, even here in Colombia, uh, I was out on Friday, uh, uh, afternoon and just getting off work and probably the largest, not probably, certainly the largest march slash protest that I've ever witnessed since I've lived here in Colombia and I've been here nearly 20 years um, was uh, taking place. Uh, absolutely peaceful and uh, people of all shapes and sizes and colors and, uh, and creeds marching together and uh, all the way down around Broadway, um, I guess down around 8th, maybe 7th, and by the county building and by the city building there, and then over to, to the uh, back by the columns and the big park back there, but lots and lots of people, and many of them, you know, very unhappy. Now, there is also, you know, an element of, of people that are just troublemakers, and they revel in this type of stuff, and it's really hard to classify who they are, uh, there are all kinds of different stories about who it might be. I'm sure there are all kinds of different uh, different provocateurs, as they say. We know some of them are even uh, authorities. You know, the, uh, the the cops have done it in the past. I remember back in Seattle, 1998, at the uh, gosh, what was that uh, that that major major protest during the I forget. There was a big economic forum or something going on in Seattle back uh, back in the in the late 90s. And anyway, it was crazy and the uh, the, the, the police and some of the intelligence services and agents for them uh, were, were playing the provocateurs and uh, making trouble and then, and, then, and then arresting other people, you know. So, uh, but that's not all of it. There's certainly an element of that, I think. And the great majority of this, I believe, is authentic. Um, there's certainly some that isn't. I'm certain of it. But, you know... Uh, I think I think for the most part it's authentic. I know some people say that um, you know that it's all being organized and it's being put on by the radical left, and um, I don't know. Maybe some of that, you know. I know there are organizations that 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 will pay protesters to you know, but they're not paying this many people. I don't think. Um, so I don't know um, if you have a comment on that. I'd be glad to hear it, but. In my opinion, I think for the most part, this stuff is authentic. Certainly, you're going to have uh, uh, you're going to have a small percentage of uh, people that are involved in it for other reasons other than the authenticity of the protest. You have people that are just looking to loot, you know, and looking to riot just for fun, um, and uh, you know that's going on as well. And fire starting, and who knows what, you know. It doesn't take a lot, though. It doesn't take a whole lot of people. Uh, to make a whole lot of trouble and it's ironic because in the police business uh, the same thing sort of goes that um, you can have a, the great majority of police on your force be good men and women that do respect people for who they are not what they look like and they're fair but only a small number a small percentage of bad cops can create a whole lot of trouble for a whole lot of people. Um, I remember, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I, there was an old Chris Rock bit where he talks about some jobs, you know, you, 
you all need to be really good at it. You can't, you can't have this, you know, a few bad apples. Imagine if we had that sort of attitude with airline pilots, you know, oh, yeah, you know, most of the time I fly the plane pretty well, but you know, once in a while I don't, you know, I just crash the thing into the side of a mountain. <laughs> well, same thing with cops, you know, we need all good cops, just like we need all good pilots. And that's a far cry uh, and a difficult bill to fill. I get it. But, but it doesn't change what the need is. Now, whether we get it or not, and whether protests in the streets, and I'm watching looting going on right now in Providence, Rhode Island. Anyway, uh, you know, some of this stuff is not helping the cause. And, and, and some of it is. And it's just mayhem. And I guess uh, we're seeing a lot of pent-up anxiety, frustration, anger, rage even among many of these people. And it, it, it may also have uh, uh, been affected by the fact that people have been sort of pent up in their own homes for, for months now. That can't, be, uh, that can't be helping. Everyone was dying to get out anyway. And so, anyway, Providence, Rhode Island, geez, that looks like the place tonight, at least one of them. Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. Interesting. Whitefish Bay, where's that? I think it's up by, maybe it's up by Madison. Maybe that's why it's a big university town. St. Louis, looks pretty quiet in St. Louis. Columbia, Missouri here, pretty quiet tonight. I've seen a few sirens and heard some police uh, action a little bit earlier, uh, but it's now uh, about 1.40 in the morning and not much going on here in Columbia, Missouri. If you have other reports, uh, please feel free to Give me a call once again, 573-443-7380 or 443-8255. I'd love to hear uh, what your experiences and observations are. All right. In the meantime, what else do we have here? Oh, I was saying I, I, I was thinking about that old um, uh, the Guess Who song, and I don't, I don't even know what the name of it is, uh, but I know the lyric that says, you know, uh, stop here, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. All right, so that song, uh, there's a line in that song that goes like this. What a field day for the heat, a thousand people in the street. And man, it really hit me strong last night. And I was watching some protesters and uh, uh, demonstrators uh, confronting police officers in Philadelphia and the things that the protesters were saying to the police officers made me think that the protesters didn't realize who they were talking to or the kind of people that they're talking to. Uh, appeals to their humanity isn't going to work. Uh, trying to make those types of people feel guilty about what they're doing is not going to work. And that's what, that's what these, these folks were trying to do. You got to understand that, especially on the front lines like that, the great majority of those men, again, the majority of them are men. I don't know if there are very many uh, women officers that are that are working on the streets, especially in the real dangerous areas. But at any rate, uh, most of them want to be there. Most of them are former military. Most of them are bored stiff. And they're just looking for a fight. And they love it. This is a great, great, fun opportunity for them. And, the, they, and they'll, they'll do as much as they're allowed to do. They will, they will take as much 
action as they are allowed to by their commanding officers. And they are very good at taking orders. They'll just, they'll do what they're allowed to do. And let me tell you, we haven't seen, we haven't seen everything yet. And I hope we don't because they have uh, non-lethal weapons. And this is an interesting term, right? But anyway, they have non-lethal weapons at their disposal that have not been presented to the public yet in this particular case. And I'm talking about sonic weapons. I'm talking about microwave weapons. And these are all things that are in the news. You can Google, just Google non-lethal weapons. And, and many of these police forces are outfitted with this stuff yet. And they have not been using it. Now, if they start, you know, that'll be a whole nother story or a whole nother chapter in the story. I tell you, speaking of chapters, you know, if you're going to be studying history down the road, be ready for the 2020 chapter to be a long one. Incredible. Uh, five months into it now. We're June 1st now. Seven months to go with an election coming up in about six I guess, five and a half, whatever, okay. All right, so what a field day for the heat, a thousand people in the street. It's a dangerous situation. For the people that are out there protesting, it can be very dangerous, and for the cops too. Um, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's just not cool at all, and we really got to do better at, at figuring out you know, how to resolve some of these problems. All right, uh, China evacuating a bunch of students from the USA. In the meantime, there's sort of a war of words that's continuing between ourselves and the Chinese regarding COVID-19. And you can find all kinds of information about COVID-19 at the Radio Orbit Forum. The world's largest all-electric airplane flew for 28 minutes the other day. This is the uh, record for a passenger airplane. And the guys on Tech Radio were actually talking about this a little bit earlier, actually yesterday uh, in the afternoon on uh, KOPN's Tech Radio. That goes off at 6 o'clock every Monday. But anyway, the guys were talking about this. Um, It was a public demonstration on Thursday of an all-electric aircraft. There's a company called Magnix or Magni-X. I'm not sure. I think it's Magnix, um, which uh, is manufacturing these planes. And they had a wonderful day up there in uh, Washington. And this is a sort of a modified Cessna 208B, uh, a grand caravan that has been uh, modified with electric motors and was able to fly uh, for about 30 minutes or so. Now, uh, there's a whole bunch to the story. And... The plane is nowhere nearly as capable as a traditionally fueled aircraft, but it is an historic uh, flight. And um, you know, if they could, if they could somehow up the battery power and lower the weight, then they could uh, could see some more success with the electric airplanes. Right now, it's just the fuel to uh, to weight ratio is just much better for jet fuel than it is for for battery power. Uh, there's John Malkovich talking about Space Force and about the toxic outrage culture. He was talking about, uh, uh, about comedy and about how difficult it is for a comedian in these particular times. What else do we have here? This is going to have to be saved for next week, but there's a YouTube video that I'm going to have to 
edit a little bit and play the audio for you, but it's about contact tracing. And if you don't know what that is, you can learn more about it next week, but you've probably heard about it in the news. It's basically, um, you know, trying to uh, connect the dots when it comes to people who have been infected with either COVID-19 or anything else for that matter. Um, and using either personal tracking or electronic tracking, um, trying to find out all of the contacts that any particular person has had over a particular period of time. And uh, it's frightening. So we'll talk about contact tracing next week. Uh, here's an article that I only have to read the headline for. Unexplained phenomena keep suggesting the universe isn't what we thought. Well, that's true. Nice long article that's not necessary. Just the title. That's all that's necessary for that one. There's another story about COVID. The fact that they, uh, there's a team in India that discovered that there is a particular bacterial pathogen that seems to coexist with uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19. And this particular coexistence could be very uh, significant in, in the fatalities. Uh, in other words, COVID-19 cases that also have a, uh, an additional bacterial infection that's called chlamydia pneumonia could make it significantly worse. And they've done a study in India that shows that that is the case. Again, you can read more details on the Radio Orbit forum. Uh, improve your critical thinking with this cheat sheet. Yeah, you can go to my website there, click on the Radio Orbit forum, and go get a cheat sheet to improve your critical thinking. Now more than ever, oh my God, we need critical thinking. Really do. Really helpful right now for everybody. We need it, all right? Nursing homes and assisted living uh, facilities account for 43% of COVID-19 de uh, deaths. So yeah, certainly many, many of the uh, elderly and immunocompromised and those with pre-existing conditions are definitely more at risk than, uh, than healthy, uh, healthier individuals. Um, <clears throat> there's a study from J.P. Morgan that says the lockdowns didn't really have much of an effect on the course of the pandemic. Of course, there are plenty of other s studies that say that it did. We have nothing but conflicting and contradictory information coming at us from pretty much all angles at this point. So I don't really know what's true or not. Time will tell with regard to COVID. It's already, uh, uh, you know, it, it's been a few weeks since many states have opened up. There certainly hasn't been too much of a, uh, of a spike, if any, in Georgia, uh, nor Florida. Missouri's been open now for about a month and we've we've had a few more cases here in Boone County and around, but to be honest, uh, they're doing a lot more testing. We're really not seeing many more hospitalizations, and we haven't seen any more deaths. Uh, it, you know, maybe it will come back and 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 give us another lesson. Maybe it will lighten up. Maybe it will uh, mutate into a less virulent and dangerous uh, virus. Maybe uh, it'll get worse. We don't know yet. It hasn't been around long enough for us to tell. So maybe the warm weather will knock it down. We'll have to see what happens in the fall. But anyway, this uh, whole experiment with uh, thousands of people marching in the streets, that's, that's also going to be an interesting um, data point or a number of data points with regard to this 
particular viral pandemic that we're all having to deal with as well. Okay. A compilation of mind-bending visual effects and optical illusions. I like stuff like that. I love optical illusions, and I found a really cool example of some of that stuff on YouTube, and you can check that out on the website. Uh, there's Sky News. There's some people in Australia talking about coronavirus, that it may have been a cell culture experiment gone wrong. This is the angle that coronavirus is actually a manufactured bug or a manufactured pathogen. Uh, interestingly, the Americans have accused the Chinese of uh, making this uh, coronavirus COVID-19 bug, literally ma manufacturing it at the level four biolab in Wuhan, China, which of course the American CDC and the WHO have their tentacles all over. It's a very, very weird situation and scary. But we also have our own labs here in the United States. And there's one in Fort Detrick, Maryland, which has been doing extremely nasty work for many, many years. And uh, the Chinese have accused us that, uh, you know, that we made it and that it was deployed over there. So uh, if either of these uh, perspectives are accurate, then we're in worse trouble than we thought because then we're probably going to have a war on our hands in addition to a pandemic and a social cultural crisis. So, but I did tell you earlier that there are no asteroids that are coming. So for now, that's cool. All right. Uh, there's an interesting video about Cuba. Um, Psychiatrists writing 86% more prescriptions for psychotropic drugs during the lockdown. So this is a, uh, a problem of unintended consequences. When you remove people's livelihood and when you put them in places where they don't want to be for long periods of time, they have uh, negative responses and they react negatively sometimes to those stimuli. And in some cases, they go deeper into addiction. Uh, they go deeper into abuse. They maybe start up a new addiction, uh, you know. Um, and uh, they may just get depressed and just feel bad. And that is extremely uh, understandable right now. And, you know, people really having a rough time. And clearly they are because... Psychiatrists are writing a lot more antidepressant uh, prescriptions. Uh, Edward Snowden, we played that last week. We've got a couple of things here that uh, you can go check out for yourself. But we're getting pretty close on time here. So I'm going to leave the rest of the news to you. Once again, you can go to the Radio Orbit Forum at www.mikehagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N, mikehagan.com. And from there, just click on the button that says Radio Orbit Forum, and then you can go check out all that stuff yourself. There's all kinds of stories up there, hundreds and hundreds of them that go back uh, at least a couple of years. And it's a real cool archive of information as well. That's kind of the way that I use it. I like to have it uh, as sort of like, a, uh, like an old archive. And if I, if I think of something that I want to refer to and I can't quite remember, there's a good chance that I put it up there on the forum and then I can just go do a little search for it and usually pull it up. I use Twitter the same way, kind of. So 
Um, I'll tell you that you can get a hold of me on Twitter if you'd like. Once again, I'm, my name is just Mike Hagan, and most of my stuff online is just my name. Of course, the website, MikeHagan.com, and at Twitter, I'm just Mike Hagan. I'll mention our guest this evening once again, Sven Nyholm. That's S-V-E-N-N-Y-H-O-L-M, Sven Nyholm. That's his Twitter address as well, and you can connect with Dr. Nyholm through my website uh, from here on out. Okay, uh, thanks again for listening to the program. I appreciate all of you out there, and I hope you're doing okay. Uh, maybe we'll get you on the horn next week. I'm not sure what I'm going to do for the show next week. Um, I've got a couple of ideas. I had some stuff planned sort of before the COVID break, but much of that kind of fell through the cracks, and I'm sort of just getting reorganized now. So um, if you've got suggestions, you're welcome to send those to me. Lots of stuff going to be coming your way one way or the other, and we'll have great music as well. If you do have anyone you'd like to hear on the program, certainly feel free to get a hold of me. And you can do that once again on the website or via Twitter or via Instagram. If you have music, if you have art, poetry, advice, whatever it is that you might like to share, please feel free to do that. And uh, I appreciate hearing from you all. All right. I will be back with you next week. Stick around for Eric P's Sound Legacy. He'll be coming at you here. So get ready for some cool tunes. That'll be going on until 530 in the a.m. where we will switch it to classical with morning air. All right. My name is Mike Hagan, and you've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. We're going to hear one more on the way out here from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Yin Yin. I dig them. This is called The Rabbit That Hunts Tigers. It's Radio Orbit. Be cool to yourselves. Be cool to other people. We'll catch you all next week.